there. Hi there. And welcome to the 99th, 99th episode. The Wayne Gretzkyist. This is the great one we've got here for you today, this folks. This is the Wayne Gretzkyist episode. <laughs> <laughs> you miss 100% of the podcasts you don't listen to. <laughs> well, yeah, welcome. This is, uh, we're one shy from the big one. The final one. This is the <laughs> <laughs> the last episode of LA Meekly. Did you ever, but we signed a contract. We couldn't go triple digits. Yeah, we did. It's like um, Y2K, the number system, just del- it will, it'll reset. So yeah. we're going to start. We're going to have some sort of glitch in our system. We're all going to turn on your podcast episodes are going to turn on you and start uh, <laughs> stabbing you in the ears which is how a lot of you describe this show when you, you yeah. know, leave comments on youtube yeah you find Reddit. us in the street yeah i leave get comments in my ear yeah. on the street. <laughs> postcards are left at my door your mouth is poison gas for my ears all that kind of stuff and i don't i don't really know how to read this episode we're back in a, the same room together yeah in your apartment uh-huh. no, nonetheless nonetheless um my new york apartment that is in glendale california uh, your former tenement uh, <laughs> that is right next to the americana which used to be in a, a whole tenement you, you've talked about this. i've made the joke before that it was an italian village that was uh completely genderfied yeah. oh this little bakery where giuseppe worked it's now an apple store <laughs> it used to be little americana <laughs> they used to have the uh the clothes hangers between buildings yeah. going from the eiffel tower to Lululemon. Again, I've run for the only thing I know in any mall is a Lululemon. And lids. Is and there a lids? lids? Is there a lids there? Is there an espresso store there? But yeah, we're back inside so we can... The real reason why we were far apart last time is that... <laughs> <laughs> There's that noise that I loved hearing all last month. <laughs> My favorite thing about having COVID was it made me drive to the Echo Park Lake every day to get tested. Be like, please say I don't have it anymore. Uh, but I got COVID yeah, somehow. You had COVID. We weren't sure yeah. when we did the recording. Yeah. You were not feeling right. I sent you uh, a message saying I have a sore throat and you sent me three messages <laughs> back to back. You're kidding. Stop it. You're kidding. What's this mean for me? <laughs> Nobody gets this. Nobody gets COVID. You can't have this. I've been telling you for years. It's a hoax. You can't have have it. But it was scary because the day or two before you had started feeling weird, we were together for a very long time in a closed in a closed, in, in closed But we kept our masks we on because we on, wanted to I be don't safe. Trust you, I think <laughs> you're lying. Yeah, you don't trust me. <laughs> I think that you go to raves. Too many glow sticks for you to not go to a rave on your persons. They were having a sale at, at uh, not party warehouse, but at party, party city. Party city, which also used the to be a, a little Italian village. But uh, well, they have municipality now. That's great. <laughs> party city fighting to become a party <laughs> municipality but but yeah you got covid i, I didn't did. get it Mira- well not miraculously we were wearing masks wearing but masks. um yeah you luckily weren't too sick no i i my sore throat as i say i got a like a sampler platter of everything <laughs> but the sore throat was the star of the show it literally felt like i swallowed a knife the hard way but well i mean that's what we were doing we were tr- we took that class that's on, why uh, we were together we were trying to get our freak show act together <laughs> but you did you lose your taste no no i i got boosted so luckily we have a friend who got it and he he didn't get boosted and he lost his taste and it's been pretty scary yeah that, that's why i was saying you like that would be that, that would be the worst part of it yeah. for me. just like forget like kill my whole family <laughs> if i couldn't taste my morning sunday if i couldn't be like these chips are stale what would i do <laughs> if i couldn't throw my soup back at the waiter when he brought it to me when i'm eating indoors indoors without uh, a mask but you're better now yeah. you still have a cough i still have a cough it's been like three weeks now since it's been more than that more than that and i still have a cough and i'm still you know every once in a while i'll spit up something gnarly be like oh that's weird i didn't know my body can hold that but it can't but i'm all that's my retainer and now we're uh and now it, it, we're just throwing like, caution to the wind and we're back together just like the rest of the pandemic i realized this could be done from home 
Why do I have to oh, go yeah. anywhere? This Why could do be I done from to... home as long as it gives Daniel about another three hours worth of audio work to oh, I'm sync so it up. Busy. And then when it gets oh. out of, yeah. I can be working on my precious little podcast or I could watch the Olympics and then text Greg that I could be an Olympian. Okay. You say that as if it's not true. I could have been, <laughs> if I had, when I first thought I should start doing speed skating and I'm I, so if glad I had, you followed the word up with skating. Well, that's what I do at Party City. Okay, if I had followed through with doing speed skating yeah. when I first thought I could go to the Olympics, yeah. I would totally have been in the Olympics. But for like sure. I told you, I wouldn't have meddled, but I would have made it to the starting line and then got disqualified for a false start. Right, right, right. And which, then screamed which you, at the referee. Which you completely planned on doing. <laughs> as a looked, protest. As a protest because you knew you couldn't win. <laughs> and could. then you did the black power thing in the air, yeah. hoping that it would go down in history. <laughs> yeah. And that was the one thing people forgot. They remember every part Everything of it except, except for the black my, power. Big, my big protest. <laughs> but yeah, anyway, I, in the past month, I could have been an Olympian and you had COVID. And I had COVID. And but that's where we are. Let's welcome in our new Patreon oh, people yes, who may be Olympians or they might have COVID. <laughs> so this month, we've got a few new people. Oh, cool. We've got Elena White. Hi, Elena. Nice to meet you. Uh, not she's meeting the, you. Anyway. She, <laughs> thanks for letting me say your name out and loud. She, and I brought her right here. Uh, that's part of the new tier. If you yeah. donate $100, you can... You, you get on our Meekly bus and we drive you around town. Yeah. It's kind of like the Vanga bus, but um, it doesn't take you to Six Flags. No. And then we have Warren Lee. Hey, Warren. How's it going? And we have Lisa Cedillo. Lisa Cedillo. Cedillo? I want to say Cedillo. Cedillo. Lisa Hi, Cedillo. Lisa. And then we have Javier Mariscal. Hey, Javier. Not. I kept saying, like, don't pronounce it Mariscos. Yeah. Don't say yeah. he's like a, a restaurant with a big swordfish on the front. <laughs> don't say that. You're right. You're absolutely right. <laughs> I really shouldn't say you that shouldn't on the podcast. Yeah. Anyway, I don't have time to edit this one, but because I got to train for the next Olympics. <laughs> it's coming up and who knows how long i'm gonna do speed skating in the next summer olympics the police arrested me for doing speed skating in without a permit <laughs> yeah that was part of i'm an olympic speed champion <laughs> part of the real reason i got disqualified is because all of my drug tests came back positive <laughs> uh, even my covid test well let's talk about other than you having covid what we did in the past month i had covid <laughs> i went to the echo park lake a lot um once i felt better we felt went better I'm fine. Would a COVID person do this? Um, uh, then you do a bunch of somersaults. <laughs> just cough up. You do somersaults and you immediately collapse. <laughs> like halfway through the second one, you're just collapsed on the ground, not breathing. Bring the microphone down here. We walked around Sierra Madre, which was nice because we found a, um, we took him to the dog park, which is in. Oh yeah, that's another thing. Ringo, the dog is is sleeping soundly yeah. after all the tranquilizers I gave him when I walked in. His big beer gut sticking out of his little sweater, just <laughs> ascending and descending as he yeah, breathes. He's sad Winnie the Pooh. <laughs> Yeah, so we, we uh, took him to the dog park, then we washed our clothes at a really nice laundromat out there. And as we we're just kind of waiting, we took a nice walk down the main drag of Sierra Madre. And it was one of those places where I'm like, I can live here. I can never live in Sierra Madre. I can be the president of the United States. I still would not be able to live in Sierra Madre. It's so nice. We went there for this video mm-hmm. that we may or may not come out, depending on how much speed I'm doing. Uh, <laughs> speed skating I'm doing. Because <laughs> um, we went to that one really nice Victorian house. But right. then the, we, we kept seeing these old cars mm-hmm, that's driving. Right somewhere and we didn't know where they were driving and we never found out either no, we're not gonna follow them. they were ghosts <laughs> did you know that they were all ghosts it's of hot scare- rod races past scare madre <laughs> almost works no i think that joke could make it to the olympics <laughs> and get disqualified but still it made it it's an honor to be nominated <laughs> yeah it's an honor uh that that joke almost went to the olympics of joking which is obviously uh comedy central roast <laughs> what'd you do well i went to a restaurant that i've always wanted to go to mm-hmm. uh, it's called mcdonald's <laughs> Now I'm part of 1 billion, 99 billion people or whatever. Yeah. I joined the movement. It's been there forever. Uh, I've always wanted to go there, but it closes. It's a lunch place okay. and it's only, I think, only open during the week and it's kind of far from me. So like I'm never there, but I had the chance. 
I went to the Munch Box. The Munch in Chatsworth Box. on Devonshire. The coolest looking little eatery. It is. In- the- that strip of the valley. <laughs> West of Topanga Canyon. Topanga Canyon. And east of Corbin. Between those two particular 7-Elevens. It's the best, <laughs> coolest looking eatery between those two 7-Elevens. I, I always thought that that place was it was the place from that they used the exterior shot in from Roseanne, but I don't think it is. I think they worked at a place called the Lunchbox. Lunch they worked at the yeah. Lunchbox, which I don't remember a lot of things about Roseanne, but I do remember that she wanted to open up a thing called the Lunchbox. And people were like, that's cute. And then she said a bunch of means yeah <laughs> i don't remember much about roseanne but she did say this one thing about this one president of ours but uh it was you know it's like a hamburger it's yeah, like it's the, the main thing is the chili burgers and it was good i yeah. really liked it it's so chatsworth though because it's there's like it you know it's like weird cowboy folk that are yeah. eating there and yeah. there, there was maybe four other people sitting around munching on stuff right and all of them seemed weird like one guy had i probably like a sniper rifle with him that's the thing about the valley is that people are always like oh los Feliz is weird or like uh like oh long beach is weird but the valley is a particular kind of weird where it's almost has a southern sensibility with yeah. old southern well, california culture chatsworth in particular is maybe the most like that why but everyone has a horse you're right it's horse town it's horse town yeah uh, the mayor's a horse it, it's just so uh, it probably also the nuclear fallout from right, rocket right, right. dine and, right you know, they sure most of the residents have four eyes they're living under the shadow of uh santa Susana. that's also chatsworth was where you got a gun pulled on you by uh sheriff's department or LAPD? i didn't i i, I pulled a gun on them <laughs> <laughs> Because I'm a folk hero <laughs> from 1881. You might have heard of me. I'm Johnny Tremaine, who I think was a Confederate, but uh, that makes sense for Chatsworth. But yeah, we, they, long story short, we were uh, a friend of mine said, "Let's go shoot BB guns uh, with our girlfriends by right. the train tracks in Chatsworth," and we did. And then part of the way through, someone sticks their head out from under the hill saying, "Drop the weapon." And you drop your first. Uh, we turned yeah. and pointed our BB guns at what turned out to be six police officers yeah. from the LAPD pointing shotguns at us. Anyway, long story short. Yeah, long uh, story short. Uh, uh, most interesting story short. <laughs> we're not here to talk about yeah. that. What I am here to talk about is that Charles Manson used to eat at the Munchbox because I jokingly said, like, yeah. I bet Charles Manson used to eat here. Charles Manson used to eat there. Who card all these swastikas <laughs> on his ta- in lunch tables? <laughs> Same table. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's Chatsworth. <laughs> but yeah, he used to eat there because Sadie used to strip sexy Sadie sexy Sadie used to strip at the candy cat which was a, a strip club across the street that right. was there until like maybe three years ago yeah and he would sit there munching uh waiting for her just slurping down chili dogs <laughs> <laughs> with another local singer who's not even from here yeah I have a book because Spawn what, Ranch was right there right there is yeah. up on the Santa Susana Hills is what we've, I forgot to say about Santa Susana but yeah it, uh, number three Rocketdyne Manson and me pulling a gun on the sheriff there's a certain especially like the valley like uh, nowhere else else do you casually talk to somebody and they're like oh yeah you see the Manson girls all the time waiting for the yeah. bus and trying to hitch a yeah. ride everyone seems to have been affiliated with a murder yeah uh, in the Chatsworth area in the Chatsworth area yeah <laughs> yeah yeah that's just that's a part of the valley I'm not too familiar with only just like driving through it but it's also like oh, I gotta stop at that there's a lot of cool because it it's is like cowboy cat. town yeah. and everything does look kind of cool but like yeah. once you get in there it's not so cool it's also where I came up with a line that every bar in the valley is a dive bar driving through Chatsworth well, Chatsworth is a dive bar <laughs> it's it's an outdoor dive bar that was that month we're gonna yeah. do a listener question at the end of okay. this so let's talk about what this month uh, what is it March mm, March yeah it's, is it March it's is it? March oh yeah 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 it is this March is February. We we're just, currently living February yeah we're still eating stale sweet tarts right. uh, sweet hearts sweet hearts whatever, yeah, whatever. Okay. I don't like candy with a message <laughs> 
unless that message is that there's three musketeers. <laughs> but yeah, we're we're gonna be talking about Mar- we're, we're gonna be talking about March. We're gonna be talking. <laughs> it's the third month for March. We're gonna be talking about behind the scenes people yeah. of Los Angeles. So there was, in particular, there's there was the movie industry mm-hmm. and there was the music industry, right. and we're gonna be talking about the people that did not get a lot of credit in their time and even right. kind of now for sort of keeping things running smoothly yeah. behind the scenes. These were not your pretty boys. No. This wasn't your Jerry of Jerry and the Pacemakers. This wasn't your Gable of Clark yeah. and Gable. I bet you thought that all these celebrities running the streets, living a hedonistic, almost disgusting <laughs> yeah. life when you read too much about it, that everything was just going smoothly. Vehicular manslaughter was not a big deal. But it turns out a lot of money was paid to a lot of cops who were all crooked. I bet you think all those members of the Mamas and the Papas that were doing all those drugs just had their lives together perfectly. Who could wake up at a reasonable hour and perform in a studio? You're going to go first. Let's hear about uh, your person. We just- decided that I was going first not only because my story is chronologically first, but because it's such a bummer and it's pretty hard to take some of these stories that we're going to knock it out first and then <laughs> probably end on a good note. Today, we're going to tackle the weird tangled web of old Hollywood studio heads, in particular MGM and its founder, Louis B. Mayer, and its right-hand man, a man we've brought up a few times on this podcast, Eddie Mannix, mm. the general manager of MGM from 1924 to 1956 and a secret studio fixer. That was his title? Yeah. General manager? Gen- he was a general manager. Huh. But really, I mean, like he was, he would just fix all the problems of right. all the stars and make sure everything ran smoothly, no matter how it had to get done. Now, there was another fixer, Howard Strickland. I didn't really do too much research on him. Sort of a gentlemanly, dapper guy who pretty much ran publicity. So if a story needed to come out to distract right. you... Or yeah. and it, it Clark was, Gable didn't hit this guy. <laughs> he struck him. Struck him. with a, And then he would list the car. In 1924, <laughs> Clark Gable knocks out Fan with his acting <laughs> ability. But the difference between Strickling and Mannix, was a, it was a huge difference. And Mannix was such a nefarious character, I thought we'd give a yeah, little more... Yeah, because he's been the character... He's been a character in at least two movies made about like because right. he was he's, he's a fictionalized version of him is in Hail Caesar with Josh Hail Brolin Caesar. And, and then Hollywood Land Bob Hoskin plays him in Hollywood Land and also the player oh, right. which I watched recently has, it's not Eddie Mannix but it's basically Eddie, Eddie Mannix yeah, 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 his yeah. face is gruff enough to be Eddie Mannix I don't know what he looks like I yeah. assume he has a big Big old face. Big old, a lot of real estate above his neck. <laughs> so like I said, we brought him up briefly when we covered the death of George Reeves in our Creepy Christmas Haunted Hanukkah episode. He also uh, sort of appeared in the Paul, another Creepy Christmas, the death of Paul Burns, which I'll, I'll cover as well. We try to start this off by saying right off the top that Eddie Mannix is not a good person. Oh, come so on. So there's a <laughs> trigger warning. There are a lot of stories in here that are upsetting. There's lots of suicides and domestic abuse and sexual assaults ahead. So if you don't like that stuff... Just wait till you hear just, Daniel's voice just, and we're good. Wait till you hear my voice telling you to repeat those stories. <laughs> Andy Maddox is one of those people who came from absolutely nothing, but was born at just the right time to shoot up from nothing to help run and orchestrate the ins and outs of the new Hollywood system pretty much in its infancy. He, like, like all of them. Like all of them. Like, like saying he came from nothing in that period of movie history doesn't mean anything because all the original studio heads right, were yeah. ruthless, greedy nobodies yeah. who became royalty and ran <laughs> yeah, Dreamland. The aristocracy that Louis B. Mayer exactly. came from. Yeah. Oh, what a Oh. The proud mayor family. We had a debut ball for <laughs> Louis B. Mayer. These men who were ruthless nobodies who became rich overnight because they had run Nickelodeons and all of a sudden were running Nickelodeon. Did Nickelodeon have a fixer? They had a fixer, yeah. yeah. Whenever Tommy Pickle... He's covered uh, in slime. Co- <laughs> 
You hey, gotta slimer. get down here. I got slimed again. I got, I got slimed Eddie, you again. gotta get here. You gotta clean up all the slime. She, she slimed so much. It's so slime all over the place. You gotta scrub Rocco it. Rocco was there. <laughs> the big heads were not, they, 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 they didn't want to be a part of it. The angry beavers, boy, <laughs> they lived up to their name. But these old, like, these old awful men who were all criminals, all committed crimes, are remembered so fondly. The old Hollywood era is remembered so fondly and they yeah. invented a chunk of this city's history. So we gotta cover it. I tried to initially start talking about Eddie Maddox with like, he was already a student guy and I, I was like no I have to show you the path of how he got there because he's a thug yeah. who was promoted to the general See, manager I didn't of MGM. Know that. I didn't know that he was a bad guy. I mean I guess you, you can't be a yeah. good guy and do the sort of things he did. But I, when I first talked about him I sort of associated him with like the wolf from Pulp Fiction. Like, I, I come was in just going to bring him up. Yeah. I come <laughs> in and I clean problems and people are like yeah you're a hero. Yeah. Or, or Ray Donovan. <laughs> but that's like the, um, the romanticization of Davy Crockett as opposed to what Davy Crockett was really like. <laughs> or the romanticization of uh, everybody who ran America That's for right. the first uh, Oh yeah, I forgot years, about that. 230 years? Let's put them on a dollar bill. Um, okay, so from the beginning... They were all fixers. So from the beginning, as briefly as possible, on the East Coast, Thomas Hedden created a camera that would capture motion pictures. Oh boy, we were really going to the beginning. You have to understand why Hollywood happened. He creates a camera that can capture motion pictures, the kinetograph. This was in the 1890s, and he had a stranglehold on the invention. Well, Eddie Mannix got <laughs> He wasn't strangling her. He was he hugging was her. Holding her. She turned purple from excitement. He took her breath away. Clark Gable will take his <laughs> breath away if you cross him. If you have your back turned to him. Along with his assistant, William Kennedy Dixon, the two went on to develop and patent the Kinectoscope movie viewer. This is obviously the great grandfather of our movie making movie viewing experience. And while they couldn't yet sync motion pictures to sound, they could film actions in motion and were able to project them to be viewed. Soon they opened up their own studio in New Jersey, Black Maria, which is also the name of the caravan would come and pick you up if you were dying. When Edison saw competition arise, he created a group, the Edison Trust, of companies who own patents needed to make a movie. Like Ed, like Eastman Kodak was part of this trust. Like yeah. any part element you needed to make a movie, there was a right. patent stranglehold on it so you couldn't make a movie or you had to pay these guys a lot of money. Uh, so they this was, an, like I said, just to outprice everybody. So even from the humble beginnings, the movie studio system was ruthless. <laughs> well, I guess we're not going to make movies without infringing on the patent. Or we can go so far away that Edison wouldn't know what we're up to, or it would take them a really long time to figure it out. Mm -hmm. And that's exactly what people did. So movie makers in the early 20th century traded the Atlantic, which we all agree suck a butt, for the Pacific, best coast is the West Coast, and started making movies out of Edison's reach. You know this already. Maybe yeah. not everybody I knows think we, this. I think we covered this extensively in every episode we've done. This is so. our prologue for every episode. This is our new intro. <laughs> this is our crawl. The Emperor. Is back. <laughs> oh, by the way, the emperor's back. <laughs> no. The emperor's back, and there's gonna be some trouble. That's how every. That's how pew, rise of pew pew pew. The emperor's back, which might be a song I'm going to be talking about. Later. <laughs> so William Seelig starts Seelig Studios around 1908. D.W. Griffith starts Biograph Studios in 1910, and between 1910 and 1913, a bunch of other independent movie studios open up, mostly in Edendale, which is adjacent to Echo Park. Uh, this includes Bison Studios, New York Moving Pictures Company, Norbert Pictures, and Max Sennett's Keystone. Studios. Studio. The Keystone Cops? Keystone Cops. Oh, okay. Because Melissa was asking me about the Keystone Cops yesterday. Yeah. Because I pulled another gun on a sheriff. But uh, I dropped some pianos down the stairs, so she had a lot of questions about that. Those two were not cops. <laughs> you know very well those were criminals. They had stripes on. You know that. She was asking me why they were called Keystone, yeah. and I didn't know, but I guess they were just, they just worked cops for the, Keystone. Cops from the Keystone Film Company. All right. Yeah. I imagine, That's a too, lockdown, but it, it might, like, maybe the studio is named after the type of cop. I don't know. So, okay, let's get back to the 
dank, stinky old East Coast. Two really? young Russian immigrant brothers raised on the Lower East Side opened an amusement park called Paradise Park. They started with a little beer stand at a popular trolley stop, and in 1906, they were able to afford an amusement park at that spot. The brothers were Nick and Joe I've heard people say skank. It looks like it's pronounced shank. Either one is bad, but I'm going to say skank. Sometime in 1911, Nick Shank. No, sorry. I already did this. Sometime, I spell it so different. Okay. Sometime in 1911, Nick, Nick Skank met a young man who was a frequent visitor to the park. And this young man keeps being described as barrel chested, mm. which makes me think of King Kong. Uh, no, not King Kong. Well, King Kong a little bit. Um, <laughs> Donkey Joe Kong. Young? This oh, makes Joe. me think of Donkey Kong. This young man was- And he loved picking up <laughs> barrels of pickles and he was throwing them at all the Italians that lived around there. Lots of barrels at that time. All full of alcohol. He supported prohibition. This young man was Eddie Mann. Yeah, Donkey Kong just didn't want people getting drunk. Yeah. Donkey Kong was so religious. Oh my he God, what was it? Staunch supporter of the 13th Amendment, or not the 13th, whatever. 19th Amendment. Um, <laughs> you um, knew that the, a little too well. Anyways, Eddie Mannix was a, from Fort Lee, New Jersey, who was around 20 years old when he met Nick Skank. There really isn't a lot. It sounds like you're describing Tony Soprano. Uh-oh. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, no. This is his picture. It's uh, James Gandolfini. <laughs> Your notes are like one of those. All the words are shaped into a, a, a profile of James Gandolfini. <laughs> this is the part where I have to sing Bob Dylan. Like I was saying, there isn't a lot known about the early years. He was Irish. He was from New Jersey. He dropped out of school. But when he was in school, people from high school used to call him Bulldog. Mm. Yikes. Anyone named Bulldog is like, unless it's a joke and he's really skinny, yeah. would stay away from Bulldog. <laughs> Bulldog and Shank. <laughs> Reports vary. Some say he was giving a job right from the start working at a ticket booth others say he started as one of the hundreds of tradesmen and handyman around paradise park or the shanks started a new park palisades park so he, he either worked both of them or was a construction person at palisades park but either way Mannix did more than just take tickets or hammer nails for the skanks he was soon promoted to bookkeeper until the irs caught wind of him working the books and he got demoted back to bouncer enforcer which is what he was i mean he was good at honestly like it's weird i don't like any Mannix. he was kind of good at everything though mm. he was good at what he had to do like he's mm. Like he's one of these. He did some good. Uh, Hitler built the Autobahn. Good as in the Great Depression. <laughs> Hitler built the Autobahn. Check out that Volkswagen. Okay, so he was a booker enforcer after he was working the books, uh, which is an absolute requirement for a New York amusement park in the 1910s. No matter what task the brothers needed him for, Eddie was up for it. And while he was technically their assistant, what he really was was their right hand man, mm-hmm. a title much more telling than an assistant. Assistant. But, but it's can... like Hellboy's right hand. Yes. Exactly. <laughs> I, get, I, yeah. I get that. I get that. <laughs> I know exactly what you're talking about. So you might trust an assistant, but a right-hand man knows all your secrets. If you've read any good Dashiell Hammett stories, the right-hand man is the one you're scared of the most. And you should suspect when the boss gets murdered. Yeah, it's almost like the boss is just a shade more incompetent than the right-hand man. (laughs) Another incredibly important relationship to the skanks is made around this time with a man who was running Nickelodeons and arcades in Paradise Park. This man was Marcus Lowe, future owner of Lowell's Theaters. Lowell and the brothers went into business together. Lowell's housing warehouse. That's right, and he's that lol too yeah after we did uh stand up for the first time we sat in rocking chairs and lols and, and decompressed yeah and, and then kind of shortly after i think the christopher dorner thing happened and like he took people hostage in that lows or oh, like they thought he was in that Lowe's. i think so yeah, yeah. they thought he was in that Lowe's. we're just steeped in la history you and it, i it, we just can't first help time it. we did comedy uh the dorner lows <laughs> you eat the munch box it's got a bunch of swastikas carved <laughs> in the table i ate there with charles Manson. that's what i forgot to mention <laughs> i was tuning his guitar because he didn't really know how to do it and he kept he kept saying stuff about god I don't know. <laughs> and I said, can you just play the monkeys theme song again? <laughs> it's pretty good. Hey, hey, we're the Mansons. 
Just messing around. <laughs> Lol. We're too busy race warring. <laughs> they were not good at race warring. <laughs> but they were busy at it. <laughs> um, Say what you will about Manson, <laughs> but he was busy. <laughs> but that guy, he was a family man. Um, So Marcus Lowell and the brothers go into business together, helping finance each other's ventures. The brothers went to work for his growing theater chain, and they acquired two Lowell's movie houses along the way, all while still running the park. So, of course... Eddie Mannix took over managing Palisades Park when the brothers were otherwise occupied. The Skanks and Lowell shared profits and began a pattern of reinvesting in real estate for Nickelodeons, vaudeville theaters, and later motion picture production. Joe Skank started making movies in 1913 after meeting Evelyn Nesbitt, who's Evelyn, uh, I don't know if you know, but Evelyn Nesbitt is considered like, I'm sure you've seen her photo before. It's like the, she's like the first pinup, what some consider the first supermodel. I don't look at that sort of stuff. Um, You're right. And she's the woman at the center of one of the many crimes of the century he met her on a boat and was like i want to make movies with you who who what crime no her husband shot her lover and it was a big deal at the time mm-hmm. all right mm-hmm. i mean like that didn't happen before it's no manson murder but okay <laughs> what did they write on the wall <laughs> what did you do with the blood to whom it may concern um old timeies so joe studio comic studio spelled kind of c-o-m-i-q-u-e much me comic was run out of a grimy warehouse at 48th and first and managed by eddie Maddox. so you can see how like they just kept like giving like this thug who's good at conning people they just kept giving him like promotions and he kept like <laughs> so showing like, up he shows up like yeah, he well, shows hey, up and does the work say what you will about eddie mannix he shows up and he does <laughs> he the work a hard worker around this time eddie got married to a woman named bernice frumis so he gets married to bernice and because he was a lecherous dog having affairs he was happily living a life already at that point well above the promise of his upbringing and he's technically still a nobody as opposed to what's going to come and he's already happy at this point <laughs> that was going to change obviously by 1990 Marcus Lowe had 60 movie theaters and vaudeville theaters and while Joe Skank ran talent booking offices we kind of know what that means Nick ran theater operations around this time we should introduce another Russian born young man who was raised salvaging scrap in his dad's business raised in Boston he started a little Nickelodeon and soon owned a large empire of movie theaters in New England this was Louis B. Mayer he moved to Los Angeles to increase the supply of motion pictures for his theater he opened up Louis B. Mayer Productions and Metro Pictures Corporation which he opened with Richard Rowland and George Crombucker this is a lot of names and a lot of movie history. We're getting to the good stuff, I swear. But I just need this. I need you to understand. I need, I need you to I need get. You to understand. I took a film class once in college. I've seen movies in black and white. You won't <laughs> believe it. There's only two colors. Um. Well, in 1919, Marcus Lowe bought Metro Pictures, and in 1924, orchestrated the merger of Metro Pictures, Goldwyn Pictures, which he also bought, and Louis B. Mayer Productions, and formally established MGM Studios, which he would run on the West Coast on the Goldwyn's lot in Culver City. Okay. This was the formation of MGM. Louis B. Mayer was made the head of the studio operations and under his wing was the boy wonder Irving Thalberg. So these mm-hmm. are all the names are starting to come together now. Yeah. Through the merger, MGM now, now... these old Jewish gangster street toughs, they're all coming together. We're also gonna marry Marilyn Monroe. Like, it, that's the wildest thing. It's like, I'm an ugly nobody who's rich and I'm gonna marry the biggest movie star on the planet. That's and then from day one, gonna be cheating on her uh-huh. with a bunch of nobodies. <laughs> ought to be alive in the 30s. Uh, ought to be a as ugly as I am in the 30s. <laughs> in the 30s. <laughs> Owning a Nickelodeon. So through the merger, MGM now held some of the biggest talent in the game at the time. Lon Chaney, John Gilbert, Marion Davies, Norma Shearer, Roman Navarro, Buster Keaton. Behind the camera, they had Fred Niblo, Victor Glemming, King Vidor, and Woodbridge, Strong Van Dyke, nicknamed One Take Van Dyke, which sounds like a put down, but he also filmed The Thin Men in 18 Days, so you can call him whatever you want. That's great. The Shanks were now the boss of Louis B. Mayer, and this thrust Eddie Mannix not only into a management position, 
acquisition of a very lucrative business. It's also put him in the key spot to be the eyes and the ears of the new entertainment industry. So now there's two essential things about understanding this. The skanks in Business of Lowell did not like or trust Louis B. Mayer. And because Nick Skank hated the West Coast and refused to move out there to do business, he sent his most trustworthy man out to LA to be their surrogate, their satellite. And that was, of course, Eddie Mannix. Mannix was now assigned to keep an eye on Mayer. Uh, okay, so he has two jobs, basically. He's the assistant to Irving Thalberg, and he was formerly being employed as a finance comptroller of MGM in 1924. Those are his like yeah. kind of like two titles. Uh, Bernice and Eddie then move out to Hollywood that year into Buster Keaton's old house in the middle of the 20s, one of the most wild, explosive. Is it the house that fell it's on It's the it? house that fell It only has three walls, yeah. Uh, the, yeah but it's be- the foundation it, is beautiful. Don't pull the door too hard. Because the wall unless might, you can pull that stunt off, unless you were raised in like a circus or whatever crazy thing. <laughs> so here's Eddie Mannix. Like I was saying, Eddie Mannix, a street smart thug with connections to the mob, is now moving to 1920s Los Angeles, one of the most explosive, wild, modern times that we look back on. A drinker, a gambler, a womanizing thug, as I said, with power, now moving to crime and a city toker. and a midnight. <laughs> and while he was never faithful to Bernice in New York, now Eddie Mannix uh-huh. would be surrounded by beautiful dames every day, and now. In a position of power, he could abuse that position at every opportunity if he chose to, and he usually chose to. This Eddie is Eddie Mannix didn't show restraint. No, a thug with power. Why wouldn't he show restraint? <laughs> the human Donkey Kong. No, Greg. No. And not helping this particular situation was the fact that while Nick Skank distrusted Louis B. Mayer, Mayer and Mannix got along swell. Mm. These two guys would just be abusing power, and nobody, <laughs> there's no, almost no checks and balances. Uh, like nobody was checking yeah, each other. It's all like, checks. Yeah, it's <laughs> that they're writing to each other. They're writing to each other. Apparently, I don't know what this was about, but Mayer knocked Eddie out with one punch and instead of ripping him apart limb by limb like a wild chimp, it said that Mayer earned Eddie's undying Mm. respect. So that actually happens in real life? I guess so. You either get your head ripped off, bare hands, or you earn respect. The bully is now the good guy. No. (laughs) From his history of creative problematic problem solving with the skanks, Eddie Mannix knew how to solve problems and keep it hush-hush. That was the two things he was good at. Along with another MGM employee, uh, the gentlemanly Howard Strickling as I brought up before, the two men would be the studio fixers. While Strickling fixed studio and talent issues through publicity, Mannix had a much more hands-on approach. They learned from earlier scandals how to work it. Like Fatty Arbuckle was a scandal that they weren't right. really involved in. Olive Thomas I think overdosed. Uh, Mary Pickford, I think. Okay. Too many chili dogs. I keep Mary Pickford in for next month's episode. Mm, we'll, s- we'll see. If we make don't, it that far. Don't worry. But these- I-, I plan on getting COVID again. But the Fatty Arbuckle thing was really an example to the boy, like a template of how to fix problems. Like, don't let this happen to your studio because it crushed your main star. I, right. I, like, everything fell apart because of that scandal. Yeah. Fatty don't, Arbuckle died for our sins. Exactly. So don't let that happen to us. Okay, so now we're going to get into some of the bigger scandals. They they obviously had day-to-day... This is, the this is when you get really E-Hollywood... Uh, kind of. <laughs> I read a lot of this in EJ uh, Benza's voice. Uh, E's true Hollywood scandals. Do it I, as Billy Bush, though. Okay, so like I was saying, they had a lot of day-to-day things that they did on the regular. I'm not going to cover that because the book I read, the okay, the book I read, I forgot to say up top, was The Fixers, Eddie Mannix, Howard Strickling, and the MGA Publicity Machine by E.J. Flemings. That's a book that I read. They didn't really cover the day-to-day stuff, but they had a lot of day-to-day stuff to worry about. A lot of paying people off, making sure that people showed up on time, making sure that this actor or actress... One of the first jobs the two men had was covering up the reputation of a silent film star, Barbara Lamar, who had been arrested when she was much younger for prostitution, and she blazed a path through Hollywood of men 
partying and drinking uh men like paul byrne went mad over her her second husband lawrence converse was so madly in love with lamar that he married her even though homeboy already had a wife and three kids and when they arrested him for <laughs> big problem in hollywood when they arrested him for bigamy apparently he was moaning her name in his cell and banging his head against the bars until he was unconscious dying three days later what a lot was that was probably drugs mm. well love is the most powerful drug of all <laughs> and i it's, snort it <laughs> especially when you inject it <laughs> directly into the right vein lamar had an insane cocaine and morphine habit and she was said to only sleep two hours a night i forgot how they played that in the papers but she's like she's got so much energy she only sleeps two hours a night because i why waste life sleeping through it and they're like you're on cocaine your nose is bleeding uh manix and strickland quietly committed her to the banksia place sanitarium telling the press it was over exhaustion mm-hmm. and when she was out they moved her in with her father in altadena and the men paid a small salary and paid off her bills in exchange for her doing anti-drug interviews for the press one of the first ones that they had to take care of nick skank's wife norma talmage was having one of her many affairs with the young actor richard barthelmess who skank greatly disliked of all his wife's suitors that was the one he hated the most skank apparently was so irate that he asked maddox to contact one of his mob connections to castrate bartholomus oh and God. send his mutilated genitals Ew. to talmage and the only reason that didn't happen was his wife agreed to end the affair oh my God. probably a best move on everyone's part <laughs> D- uh, that's disgusting do you have pictures uh, attached and unattached let's see pictures before and after yeah, before and that. after yeah so, just so i know how weird it was before and because homosexuality was a crime at the time they were constantly hiding the sexuality of their biggest stars and they mm-hmm. were trying to like okay. dish greg tell me who always hiding the sexuality of the actors from the public scrambling to cover the lives of lgbt actors like billy haynes william haynes joan crawford roman navarro barbara stanwick by pairing them with actors of the opposite beards if you will they're always doing stuff like that and these actors didn't want to hide who they were so they were constantly out with people of the same sex so the two guys would oh they're hanging out with their friends and oh look at them they're the best friends of all time look at them holding hands well i told you have i told you one time we were at a an indian restaurant and there were two men with like a baby and a stroller and i was way too loud i thought it was just two friends like going out with uh like one of them had a baby yeah i was thinking like oh me like when me and greg when I have a baby. I'll go out and have dinner with Greg and a baby. And I was like, oh, look, two men and a baby. But it was two men that had a baby. Yeah, they had a baby. Partners with but a baby. They, they, they could, yeah, that, I, I'm Eddie Mannix. That's what I'm trying to say. <laughs> it makes me uncomfortable. That's what I'm trying to say. Um, I don't like this line of conversation we're having. Let's go back to the mutilated genitals. Uh, so I also read that actor William Haynes was arrested in 1926 cruising the square. That square is Persian per- square. Oh, okay. On the run. Yeah, on the run. Uh, Strictly and Max had to cover that up. After years of emotional torment from dating Greta Garbo, actor John Gilbert in a drunken haze took shots at tourists parked in front of his house in Beverly Hills. Like gunshots? Gunshots. Is took this, shots at their car. Chatsworth? the Beverly Hills of the Valley which is Chatsworth Maddox had to take care of the police and MGM had to buy the tourists a new roadster oh and by the way not only was the DA first it was Asa Keys and mm-hmm. after he was arrested for accepting bribes from Ju- uh, the C.C. Julian scandal it became Burr and Fitz the DA was constantly whoever the DA was was in MGM's pocket okay. as was a good friend of Louis B. Mayer was police chief William Parker mm-hmm. and then later Jim Davis mm-hmm. so obviously they can cover anything up John Gilbert continued with his obsession over Greta Garbo and sometime later he scaled the walls of Garbo's Santa Monica hideout and her lover tossed John Gilbert off the railing and onto the sand the police uh, arrested the sand. 
I kind of thought that too. I read Tossed. I, I oh would God. pay for that experience. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> tossed into a vat of marshmallows. <laughs> <laughs> Who's Greg Garbo's lover? Where does, where, does, where, where does she live? And what are they the pink marshmallows? <laughs> so tossed out on the sand by her lover, her other lover. The police arrested him and Mayor told Mannix and Strickling to teach Gilbert a lesson and not do anything to cover it up. Mannix oh, let wow. police handle him. Strickling let the press run the story and Gilbert spent 10 days in jail. Although it kind of backfired a little bit because they had to bail him out like a day and a half in because all these fans and drinking buddies of John Gilbert were swarming the jail and like getting arrested just to hang out with him in jail. So like it was a big show of support when he got arrested. But this just shows like if they turn the machine off for you and they show you no love, then you just get exposed for the dirtbag that you are. So like it's almost like we're protecting our property and our investment, but also you want us backing you up if you're a dirtbag. And this isn't the same Johnny Gilbert who does the announcements on Jeopardy. I'm going to say no, that it's not. <laughs> it's also not Gilbert Gottfried. That was my next question. It's also not Gilbert Grave. Um, that was my third, that was question. My third question, actually. <laughs> but Strickling at the... Is it Gilbert and Sullivan? <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to keep going if that's okay. Another name that's been hung up in the rafters, Gilbert. That's true. No one, no one, there's no Gilberts anymore. Gilbert yeah. Hernandez, who's a cartoonist, is great. Uh, Dilbert is my favorite cartoon. And political North Star for me. <laughs> well, what does Gilbert have to say on the matter? Not Gilbert. Dilbert. You Dilbert. Well, what does Gilbert have to say about it? Uh, you dog. <laughs> but Strickling at the behest of Mayor would continue to run stories and photo play about the crumbling relationship between John and Greta, which tortured John. This was just a way to stick the knife in him a little mm-hmm. bit for being, I guess him and Louis B. Mayer hated each other. So just to stick it to him every once in a while, they would just run a thing about like, Garbo and John Gilbert aren't doing great. He'd be like, well, hi. So 1927, we'll get back to Eddie Max now, also marks a big point in Eddie Max's life as he began an affair that was becoming quite serious. He hooked up with a former Ziegfeld girl, his favorite type of girl, Mary <laughs> Imogene Bubbles Robertson, or as she's remembered now, what? Mary Nolan. Bubbles was her dancing name. Oh. Who, thanks to Mannix, was now under a contract for United Artists. Thalberg tried her for an MGM movie, but she was so messed up on drugs, she couldn't work for them. It's like Bubbles from The Wire. I don't know. I, I sh- sure. <laughs> I, I, I sure. only watch Marvel movies. Yeah. <laughs> if there's a hero named Bubbles, I probably know who that is, but there isn't. <laughs> Super Bubbles. Yeah. So she was working for a U, uh, United Artist because she couldn't work for MGM. He was getting her work, but dating Eddie Mannix seems like a nightmare. Like Nolan had three abortions arranged by Mannix, Whoa. which he was. they were doing all the time for stars. Yeah, I th- I've think i heard that, that. Yeah. Maybe not Judy Garland, but like the other young stars of the day. He's dreaming. Um, Ringo's having a dream and he's slowly like coming to life like the thriller yeah. video. <laughs> he's twitching to life. Yeah, he, uh, she had three abortions arranged by Mannix and was constantly trying to have a she had a cover up bruises and black eyes that Mannix had given her. In 1929 he tried to end it with her and she threatened to go to his wife Bernice so Eddie beat her unconscious Ooh. causing her to have 15 abdominal mm. surgeries from the <sighs> beatings. She then tried suing Eddie for what today is 5 million dollars. Strickling did the best he could to belittle her public figure through the press spilling all the nasty details that Eddie had on her and because of these I have a feeling this isn't going to end well for this woman <laughs> better than another woman that comes up later because of the severity of the pain that he caused her she started taking morphine to treat it and then mm. obviously got hooked on it mm. so one night Eddie sent some police friends over to her place and gave her the ultimatum of being arrested for drug possession or leaving town so she left town she came back 10 days uh, later what a good you know what he's not as bad as you made him out to be he gave her the option to she's live she's not dead <laughs> just her career but that's the kind of guy that Eddie was he, mm-hmm. he would send the police over and be like well you can leave town or we're gonna arrest right. you for the morphine that you have to take because I beat the crap out of you it, it's so it's just so weird to when you think back of like the, the movie studios didn't have that much 
much power in the city, but like they were this yeah, city. They were. And it's crazy to think like, well, the cops were in the pocket of right. Hollywood. The They're DA also in the, po- in the, the pocket, pocket of, of Hollywood. Hollywood. The press had the police in the pocket as well. Right. And, they and the white for the supremacist power. mayor, I'm the sure, was in the pocket. Mayor, yeah, <laughs> was somebody. Also working under Ken King They were like the little pocket I have where I put my mints in. <laughs> That's the pocket the mayor was in. I bet there was like a three square inch <laughs> yeah. that was not corrupted the in the city 20s. was like a pair of cargo pants <laughs> and it was being worn by louis b meyer it's exactly it's it's jinko and jinko pants <laughs> right before he went skateboarding around his neighborhood <laughs> listening to some 41 okay so now we'll get into joan crawford who reading about her i'm like i can't believe I, I like it's weird reading about a person who's so revered and then you're like i'm reading about her life i'm like stop just stop just stop doing these things when we're doing these behind the scenes things because mine is the same exact way where i'm like i don't want to be doing this research because it's ruining music for me like <laughs> nothing i thought was this was what i thought it was i don't like this episode yeah this is upsetting let's me. now let's just talk about how great joan crawford was <laughs> don't you like mildred pierce <laughs> my favorite <laughs> you, you've seen my poster let's watch mommy dearest oh no <laughs> she did what to who joan crawford has one of the biggest scandals that Mannix had to deal with rumors were starting getting louder regarding a porno that she was in when she was making movies in New i don't York. watch that sort of thing greg but describe it to me, Rosalind. I don't watch it, but could you please draw it? <laughs> could you give me the novelization of Joan Crawford's porn? She did this in New York in her early days when she was going under the name Billy Cassian. The rumors were true. So MGM put Mannix in charge of tracking down the negatives and destroying them. Imagine today, like Eddie Mannix has to bring down a sex tape. Mm-hmm. That's the movie I want to see yeah. today. Eddie Mannix like breaking into YouTube headquarters. Yeah, YouTube. YouTube. Yeah. YouTube headquarters. <laughs> breaking um, into internet headquarters and just <laughs> take flag every song but you can slip a porno in by accident if the pam and tommy show that's out right now also had just like a 1940 like 1920s eddie mannix i gotta gotta save the sanctity of the studios again nobody will watch baywatch if they see this woman naked knowing she has sexual intercourse (laughs) will you please hold my coffee while i punch this woman in the gut 15 times awful man bad guy so he had to track down this porno that joan Uh crawford was in and he did Uh, did joan crawford want this covered up i mean i guess she would she sorry that was rude obviously Yes, she did not want a porno of her getting out. I mean, I wouldn't, but I guess it was a different time. It's like split between three reels. Like you can have one reel and not know who you're watching and then be like, oh no. When Um, the LA Meekly sex tape gets released finally, oh boy. Oh boy. boy. Numbers are going up. Um, (laughs) That's not all it's going (laughs) So he tracked down the negatives and destroyed them. He found them, bought them, and burned them. Around the same time, a file- He bought them. He could have just killed a bunch of people. (laughs) He punched the negatives uh, (laughs) repeatedly until they (laughs) moved out. of. They gave them the option. Spontaneously, they combusted, quote unquote. Uh, you can either go up in flames or you could move to uh, Utah if you want. Very nice. You can have as many husbands as you want. It's not how it works. Around the same time, a file on Joan Crawford's Detroit prostitution arrest oh that God, happened when she was younger went missing. A file about that arrest went missing from J. Edgar Hoover's offices. Hoover was a friend of Mayer, by the way. When she left MGM in 1943, she paid them $50,000, which many as Phil is hush money for covering up the existence mm-hmm. of the tape. Uh, J. Edgar Hoover could have used some Mannix uh, work. I saw the movie. Where did you get those? That's not Joan Crawford. <laughs> <laughs> so that was a big one, but Crawford caused a lot of problems. Like, 
a lot of problems. Like there's Sounds like, like it. three people that would not leave them alone and were like daily, weekly problems. <laughs> She's one of them. She, Mount Rushmore problems for MGM. <laughs> she'd be up there. Her sexual appetite and her bisexuality was something that the men were constantly trying to squash and hide, including a long affair with Tallulah Bankhead, which she did not want to cover up. Tallulah Bankhead, when she was quitting MGM, told Mayor, I slept with your biggest stars. <laughs> Hell yeah, girl, get it. Crawford's problems. That statement was grabbed in the middle of <laughs> the air by Eddie Mannix and shoved into a garbage disposal. Shut up, shut up, shut up. Crawford's problems were not just boning problems. In 1928, she was driving drunk down Hollywood Boulevard, weaving Uh through traffic and running lights when she hit a woman in the crosswalk. She tried to bribe the policeman on the scene, and when that didn't work, she just drove away back to her (laughs) Brentwood home and immediately called Strickling. Strickling solved the problem by driving to the- follow me to Brentwood. Yeah, uh, yeah, no jurisdiction here. (laughs) No one ever gets convicted in Brentwood. (laughs) So Strickling solved the problem by driving to the hospital with $10,000 in cash, $100 bills, and paid the woman so off. So she didn't die. It wasn't no, no, a she didn't Gable die. Situation. It wasn't a Clark Gable situation. Um, Joan Crawford, Clark Gable, and Spencer Tracy were said to be, like I said, the biggest Headaches. Spencer Tracy? What did he do? Oh my God. Spencer <laughs> I Tracy. Guess I don't know that much about Spencer oh Tracy. Oh my. I won't cover it as much here, but there's a you must remember this on Spencer Tracy that literally I was like, stopped walking. I was walking and I stopped walking. <laughs> How am I going to watch Inherit the Wind after this? We've covered some high profile, high crazy alcoholics before we've covered like Fitzgerald and Uh, Faulkner and other just other people in LA history who were like fall down drunks Spencer Tracy (laughs) I have no words for his level of alcoholism and the (laughs) tirades and the temper an insane person literally would have like a drink of like oh, I'm gonna have a shot of whiskey and would like just become insane (laughs) before the glasses down he's already put down four ethnicities it's literally it's literally like like Looney Tunes when you have like a little right, sip and yeah. then you just like... Yeah, his, his eyes start spitting. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, it, okay, Spencer Tracy. Their alcoholism, wild tempers, and sexual escapades were almost unstoppable. Like I was saying, Spencer Tracy, ungovernable, insane level alcohol, king alcoholic. We've talked on this podcast before about the abhorrent behavior of Clark Gable. Loretta Young accused him of date raping her. She had a child from that, which he never met. So she went ahead and had the baby and MGM, with the help of the fixers, covered it up. No one in the press knew she was pregnant. She had to give her child up to an orphanage oh. for a year and then adopt it oh. as if mm. I did the same I mean, thing. Awful. Awful. But like, at least they yeah. didn't kill the baby. Oh, <laughs> this, no. At yeah. this point, I'm grateful for that. Yeah. He also impregnated, apparently impregnated writer Roger St. John's, and then they had to cover that up. And now, by the way, Wait, he was, who? Uh, Roger St. John's. So I don't know who that is. Wait, who? The, the oh, Roger Clark, got impregnated? Clark, Clark Gable, Gable impregnated, impregnated a, a writer. writer named Roger? Rogers St. Cl- St. John's. This is a woman? Yeah. No, he impregnated a man. Is this what Mr. Mom? This is Junior, and this is that movie Junior. (laughs) Yeah, that's the one. Oh, by the way, Clark Gable doing all this, he was married to two different women and getting into an insane affair with Joan Crawford, which required paying off blackmailers who were going to go public with what they knew about the affair. Hmm. He should have been the one living in Utah. He should have been the one living in Utah. Clark Gable, everybody. That's him. Mannix tried to cover up a hit and run. that We've talked about this before that Gable committed in 1933 killing actress Tosha Rowland. It's never been confirmed, but they say that Mannix paid John Huston, director of Maltese Falcon and the bad guy in Chinatown, to say that he did. Mannix and Clark, though, through all of this, best pals. And if you have Clark Gable as a best friend, you're not doing great. Well, you can separate the man from the art and the man from the <laughs> man. You can separate the man from the humanity, for you sure. You can take the man out of Mannix, yeah. but... 
Mannix is still a man. Almost, you almost have it. By 1930, Mannix, the street smart thug, who was now a general manager of a major motion picture studio under Luby Mayer and Irving Thalberg, spends Sunday nights at Sam Goldwyn's mansion playing poker with Sid Grauman, Eddie Cantor, and the Marx Brothers. <laughs> some of his other friends were mobsters Mickey Where's Cohen. Where's that movie? Uh, some of his friends were uh, mobsters Mickey Cohen and Jack Dragna and the Culver City Police Chief and MGM, head of police for MGM, Whitney Hendry. These are all just his pals. He was also in with crooked lawyers like Jerry Geisler, who helped Errol Flynn and Charlie Chaplin get off of, well, Errol Flynn had rape charges and I think Charlie Chaplin had similar charges. Not rape. Uh, just underage. Uh, underage uh, women. Yeah, underage uh, dating. Strickling also made a powerful friend, Billy Wilkerson, who we've talked mm, about before, ran Zeros oh, yeah. and he ran Hollywood Report. Oh, Reporter. So at the beginning of the 30s, they thought it was a huge threat to them that all of these gossip magazines were coming out because that now all of a sudden they had to put out all right. these other fires. But they pretty much, with Wilkerson's help, controlled the Hollywood Reporter. So they controlled like the one of the biggest <laughs> variety so magazines. Crazy. Yeah. Like every aspect of what Los Angeles was, mm-hmm. except maybe oil, they were running it. One place that Manning and Strickland could rely on was the House of Francis, a high end brothel run by Lee Francis that was on. Mm-hmm. The Sunset Strip. Now, I know what you're thinking. Off the Strip. 8439 Sunset Boulevard, right next to Ciro's, which is now the comedy store, was a brothel. Uh, Eventually moved- the Strip in Sunset. That's why they- is, uh, Did I get that right? Is that what you, happens at those places? That happens at those places. They strip. I- <laughs> But this is where Mannix and Strickling would send sexually pent up stars of any sexuality. If you were gay and you wanted to be with a man, they would send you to House of Francis. Francis. Yeah. They also made house calls and would frequently send sex workers over to Jean Harlow. Apparently, <laughs> she would also go by House of Francis and take male customers home, according to the book The Fixers. I don't know if that's true. Many people complained about her rough sex. Yeah. Why are these actors so horny? I don't know. They're like, all throughout insane. time. Like I knew that they everyone had like a little bit of shady stuff, but like oh but, my but, but God, even today you hoping. hear things about like every actor yeah. is like sure Army Hammer likes to nibble on your flesh a little bit, but he also probably sexually assaulted people. So that's probably number one. We should probably call that number one because he didn't actually eat anybody, but he did sexually assault people. So House of Francis, you see an Errol Flynn, John Gilbert, Spencer Tracy, Clark Gable, and many other MGM stars and studio and visiting clients were treated to the House of Francis by Mannix and Strickling. MGM eventually paid for a more discreet location since this one was on the Sunset Strip. <laughs> With so, a big billboard yeah. pointing. Vice, vice. Vice, 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 vice. <laughs> like three arrows coming down. Horny, question mark? <laughs> Eat here. They basically, with if I read correctly, with Lee Francis and the fixers, with the money MGM gave them, opened up Maze, which was run by a May West lookalike. <laughs> And it was like the like what you see in Alley Confidential, like they would make sex workers up to look like movie stars. And the studios actually lent Maze some actual costumes from movies to dress up That's so their work, weird. their catalog. That's gross. It's very weird. Um, so we've covered on this podcast before the 1932 death of Paul Byrd. Uh, you didn't say it was gross. Oh, it's very gross. Good. Who would? Uh, let's. Who would, uh, we got. We got to get this episode through the Christian League. So you've got to say this stuff is gross. Who would want someone dressed like Charlie Chaplin's tramp? <laughs> yeah, they look like Greta Garbo but they're dressed like Charlie Chaplin like they got all of the costumes mixed up in the hotel one time Betty Davis went to something dressed like Groucho Marx it's that <laughs> I want a, someone with the body of Myrna Loy but with the suit of Buster Keaton 
enter Marlene Dietrich, but you don't even have sex with them. You just run lines with them. And they're like, are you kidding me? I am sorry. I just need, I just need it. I have an Put audition. Raw <laughs> so we've covered the 1932 death of Paul Byrne, husband of Jean Harlow, who was found dead from a self-inflicted gunshot wound in Benedict Canyon. Also Sharon T and Jean Seberg stayed there years later and she might've seen right. a ghost and got a premonition of her own uh-huh. death, but that's its own episode. Yeah. Why does it smell like the munch box in here? <laughs> oh God. Imagine being attacked by Charles Manson and you After just smell he just chili, chili and he's got a chili in his beard and he's like, you're in a stranglehold and you just have chili over your face. There's no doubt in my mind he had chili in his beard at least 95% of the yeah. time. Uh-huh. Yep, absolutely. <laughs> he was buried with under his fingernails. Yeah. Was chili too, and I bet like anything he touched tastes like a jalapeno. Uh, and whenever he did that dance, you just got wafts of like chopped <laughs> onions. God, can you imagine someone like two feet tall, like Charles Manson, just like covered in like chili, just screaming at you? I'm here for Sadie. Amen. Amen. Sadie, are you done yet? <laughs> Oh, man, is that Dennis Wilson, man? Upon finding the body of Paul Byrne, Gene Harlow made a call to Strickling before the police or paramedics were called. So on the scene were Mannix, Strickling, Irving Thalberg, and Whitey Hendry, the Culver City police chief, the guy who worked at MGM. The Fixers claimed... I didn't... The book, The Fixers, didn't know this before. The Fixers claimed that he was murdered by his common-law wife, Dorothy Millette, to avoid a scandal of murder and bigamy because he was like... They they weren't technically married, but they lived together for the amount of years that makes you your wife. And then he married Gene Harlow and she flipped a wig and apparently killed him to avoid a scandal of murder and bigamy they decided the fixers decided to call it a suicide and went ahead and created a whole story of why he committed suicide and proceeded to assassinate his character in the press to sell the lie the newspapers were called before the police were Mannix and the DA also choreographed the coroner's inquest just two days later Millette was found dead not long after just 10 days after having drowned in Sacramento. She was aboard a river steamer, the Delta King, less than 24 hours after Burns turned up dead and then she went missing for this from this boat. Strickling paid for her funeral and headstone and told the press that Jean Harlow insisted on paying for everything herself. Not true. <laughs> Reporters still managed to look into it and found that, you know, that, that Paul Byrne had a common-law wife, but the lie sold to the public and that lie still holds to this day. When I did research for that episode, yeah. Dorothy Millette did not come up. So that lie of him committing suicide because he was upset about a fight with Jean Harlow that still like holds pretty strong as opposed to he had another wife and she killed him okay in 19 19- so eddie mannix was a writer too yeah he was something of a writer him and strict uh, strickling was a better writer but mannix was probably made all the calls yeah. he, he was good with dialogue he was good with dialogue and he also like well, like i said like he choreographed the coroner's inquest like he ma- made sure that nobody looked too much so he was a choreographer his, he was too. a choreographer by 1933 mayor officially put eddie mannix in charge of all operations at mgm so we talked about louis mayor irving thalberg eddie mannix was like the third person on but, that but list was this just like a, a honorary title to make it look above board i or think was, so well he like there was like his th- name was on checks he yeah, had a, but so, a way for him to get money legitimately yeah. it's not like someone would like what do you think about the ending of uh, oh, the yeah. wizard of oz eddie man oh no he had no i pretty sure he had no creative input in the yeah films. i would hope not he just had to like make it half in color I like it when the lion's scared, so uh, keep <laughs> yeah. being scared. I don't like a tough lion. How about instead of a red brick road, <laughs> it's a yellow brick road. And how about that munchkin over there <laughs> hangs himself? I'll help him do it. I'll get him a little stool or whatever. Yellow brick road, it's a metaphor. I like the theme of this thing for the dust bowl <laughs> and the depressions. As Joseph Campbell would say <laughs> in a few years. Yeah, it's the hero's journey. <laughs> He's the most educated man in Hollywood. He just knew storytelling. Yeah. I read the Sid Field books. I get it. Save the cat at the <laughs> beginning. 
But me, I kill the cat when I go to someone's house. I don't kill the cat right away. I make it suffer so it knows what it did. So yeah, he was in charge of daily operations, which was sure. just like wrangling and making and putting out yeah. fires. But he, yeah, like I said, no creative input. The next year, 1934, he meets another Ziegfeld dancer, Camille Tony Lanier, and the two were immediately into each other. Apparently, he saw her on set, turned to his assistant, and said, give her $4,500 for the day's work and have her come see me. Oh, God, gross. Unfortunately, she was really into that. She uh. was a feisty, heavy-drinking, lots-of-sexing Irish Catholic, so she was a female uh. Eddie Maddox. Yeah, they called her She-Bulldog. <laughs> Bell-Dog. <laughs> Got it, Bell-Dog. So by 1935, his real wife, Bernice, had had enough and quietly moved to Palm Springs. Tony moved in with Eddie, but Bernice refused to give Eddie an official divorce. He didn't need to. <laughs> Oh, no. Because in 1937, Bernie Mannix died in Palm Springs oh in a car crash she was in with another man, owner of a casino down there. Oh and I cars the weren't roads. even invented yet. No, it was, a, it was a locomotive. The papers that I read... Horse crash. They, they shoot horses, don't they? <laughs> he does. Uh, the, the horse wish it was shot. The papers thought that a car being towed off the side of the road may have confused the driver and he lost control. Different reports say the accident was a little bit suspicious, though. Hmm. They said that Why? there were two sets of tire prints in the sand off the road and the car was scraped front to back along the side oh it looked like it had been run off the road but now nothing stopped him from marrying tony lanier and making her tony mannix i don't know if you remember that name but it, we talked about her before did we yeah we did mm. and the two lived happily i don't listen to this show yeah it's one it's just comedy bang bang oh then i don't listen and then the two lived happily open relationshipy ever after <laughs> they were an open relationship now comes the most heinous cover-up, in my opinion. This is okay. the bad. This is, like, the worst. Okay. I mean, Worse than a, punching a woman so much she had to get 15 surgeries. Let's, why compare tragedies? Why <laughs> compare grief? This is a really bad no, one, though. Let's. This is, like, top dog. As they say on the last podcast, and left gold star material. Okay, which means I don't listen to that show. You, 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 you might like it. In 1937, MGM... Those had, boys, they talk too much over their history. They're naughty. They make um, a bunch of jokes about history. I don't like they that. They try to belittle tragedy. In 1937, MGM had a spectacular year with movies like... Like Romeo and Juliet, The Great Zegfeld, 1947, 1937, Mutiny on the Bounty, and the China Seas. MGM was going to go all out for their annual sales convention, which would be held for five days in Culver City in the summer of 1937. The conventioneers who arrived by train were steadily fed alcohol while women were paraded around, and it was going to be a complete this gross. Bacchanal. This is gross. Hollywood's disgusting. Yeah, it's really gross. You know who's going to fix this? Q. <laughs> <laughs> he can't be bought. He can't be bought. He cannot be bought. He can't be bought. Him. JFK Jr. Um, they're gonna Sammy Davis Jr. too. Why not? The ghost of Obi-Wan Kenobi is going to come in too. And they're going to fix all this problem. They're going to circumvent the law and get what needs to be done. And we're going to thank them. What What law? What law? What? Excuse me. What law are they going to... They're going to do this legally? How are they going to get us to agree? Lots of questions for those people. Like, where do you sign up? Like I was saying, the conventioneers steadily fed alcohol with no stops. And there were women being paraded around, except no one told the women who were not sex workers, but dancers hired for the day and to hang out and perform that this was the use of them. They were earning $7.50 and a hot lunch. We wonder why like this stuff sort of stuff still happens because it was like tradition. Yeah, it's tradition and it's the boys club thing. The boys club thing is bad. The boys club thing is bad and it's weird reading all this and being like, well, the the past is weird. (laughs) Harvey Weinstein's whole deal was this and like probably every other Mm -hmm. studio exec. No, 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 name one more. (laughs) Walt Disney. Um, Bob Iger. Whoever runs A24. (laughs) (laughs) There's just a bunch of goats here. <laughs> it's weird. We don't know yeah. what's happening, but we know something wrong something is happening. Something wrong is happening. The goats, one of them really mad at me. <laughs> so we're going to center in the Wild West show at Roach's Ranch, Hell Roach's Ranch oh, okay. in Culver City, days into the wild excursion. It was advertised as 
a stag affair out in the wild and woolly west where men are men. Oh, do not go to that. The women were fitted with short skirts, tight bolero jackets, leather studded cuffs, and black boots and were set loose into a crowd of men who are boozed up and promised the girls couldn't say no. Ew. So of course, it's awful. Like, it's absolutely awful. Patricia Douglas spent most of her time trying to avoid a man named David Ross who would not leave her alone. Ross eventually cornered her and with the help of two other men, held her down and poured liquor down her throat. But she managed to get away where she went off to the bathroom to throw up she was later cornered again by ross where he sexually assaulted her inside in the car she immediately was taken to the hospital but it was a hospital in culver city across the street from mgm so it was run by a close friend of the studio and to sum up mgm went about covering all their tracks by getting attendees even those who supported douglas into either lying about the events or staying silent douglas was persistent though and she was going to sue mgm because she wanted justice but the fixers were built for things like this because if the public found out that mgm sponsored a week-long orgy and employed girls for as party favors the reputation of the studio would be destroyed because it was a family-friendly right. studio yeah. and now presenting curly top <laughs> <laughs> exactly and now we're gonna show you a film about the morals of <laughs> of uh, being a christian american uh, exactly this was their damage control and if this was the big game then strictly and max had been practicing for years for this they hired pinkertons to dig up dirt oh. on her which they didn't find anything because she was a virgin who never drank so they got girls to lie about her and then the actor wallace Barry, who was there at the event and actively trying to help girls Your to cousin? safety. Wallace Barry? <laughs> I'm not going to even do the line this time. Come on, do the line. You got to do the line. So Wallace Berry was at the event and he was actively trying to help girls. I think he even got in a fight with a guy over protecting a girl. He suddenly didn't remember anything about Douglas. Mm. And the parking attendant who saw David Ross leave the car after the assault was told by MGM he would be set up for life if he changed his story. And he suddenly was silent about the whole thing and Mm. then suddenly working as a driver for MGM, which is a job he held for the rest of his life. Mm. Hal Roach tried to get her gynecologist to say she had VD. The doctors she saw at the hospital right after claimed that he saw no evidence of intercourse she was defamed made to recount the traumatic event in detail in court she was humiliated and in the end the lawyer who stood by her was offered an ultimatum win this case or advance your career in politics so he advanced his career in politics Mm. and the grand jury refused to indict rapist david ross he walked free and the mgm fixers effectively killed patricia douglas Mm. none of the story was even known until 2003 when vanity fair did an article shortly before her death and her story again was made into a documentary called girl 27 which detailed the case this was the power of the movie studio in 1937 they they got away with everything and the architect of so much misery was eddie manix great you know i i don't think he's a good guy i think that he might be bad yeah i think that these men might be troublesome we'll try to wrap up the story quick with a story we've talked about before tony mannix george reeves and okay. eddie by all accounts this i do not remember this okay <laughs> by all accounts the relationship between tony mannix and george reeves the superman actor she fell in love with was totally fine with eddie because he had his own affair going on with the japanese woman posing as a housemaid the four even went I on already vac- kind of see where this story's going and i don't like this the four even went on vacation together oh, no eddie gave tony money there weren't animals involved <laughs> were there it's a24 party eddie gave tony money and tony spent the money on things for George because she was obsessed with George Reeves like a car and a house in Benedict Canyon but nothing could make him happy he was depressed and hated playing Superman but that's all people wanted to see him as but there was something that could make George happy and that was Leonora Lemon a woman he met in New York and was instantly smitten over I said animals I'm thinking of the wrong Superman Reeves I was thinking of Christopher Reeves yeah and I was thinking like Eddie Mannix paid the horse to throw him or something anyway wrong 
Superman, go keep going. They fed him a steady stream of carrots for the rest of his life. No, <laughs> or do you want to go race at Santa Anita? <laughs> you want to visit the glue factory or Santa Anita? Which one is it? So he falls in love with another woman, Leonor Libin. So he gets back to LA and he breaks it off with Tony and moved Leonor into the Benedict Canyon home that Tony bought for him with Eddie's money. Tony was obsessed over George. And if you remember, George was mysteriously almost run off the road twice, wow. as well as having his brakes on his car cut and his beloved dog went missing from his car one day. 1959, depressed while his girlfriend was partying downstairs, George killed himself mm-hmm. in that home. Or did he? Witness reports were confusing and police found two extra bullet holes in the carpet. His death is another mystery that's tied to Eddie Mannix. And these things will never, ever be solved. Nope. Because the cover-up is done so good. You know, the right people lied the right amount of times and things were covered right. up and paid off. Well, when you have the police covering it up for you, you're never going oh, to get to the nev- truth. Oh, you're never going to get to it. And now... But that's all- where we come in. Let's go break into a bunch of houses in Benedict Canyon and look at the floor. But now, like, it's so covered by time, there's no way to... Yeah, you're right. Like, we'll never it's know impossible. because they did such a good cover-up Like, job. those houses probably don't even... I'm talking about it as if it's still a crime scene. Uh, like, we can't go there and see, like, oh, wait a minute, there's a footstep in the garden. There's a hundred-year-old bullet hole. <laughs> so by this time, Eddie was on its way out. His health deteriorated, obviously, the way he lived through the 50s. And now in the early 60s, he was practically invalid. Uh, he died of a massive heart attack in 1963. Tony Mannix died yeah, in the good. eight. Good. I, I, I wish that he could die yeah. another time. I wish times. it could have been more than massive. <laughs> I wish he had to live in the moment of that massive heart attack. <laughs> a nuclear and ne- heart attack. A nuclear heart attack. And it sort of never ended. He's a just constant. A 40 year heart attack. <laughs> it's like the person who gets hiccups for like three yeah, years. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, Tony Max died in the 80s watching reruns of Superman into her later years. That's how obsessed she was. Wow. MGM was essentially... I mean, that's how I'm going to go out too, but <laughs> the even though I got it mixed up with the other Superman. <laughs> but still. The better Superman. MGM was essentially crushed by this point, the 60s, having lost the battle to message films by like people like Dory Sherry, who I think replaced Louis Mayer, and television. Tele- they they could not predict the power of television, right. and they were just like, let's yeah. fight it. Let's not try right. to join in and, and make a TV show. Let's the just The crimes fight it. Eddie Mannix covered up from the Brady Bunch family. <laughs> oh my God. And the Partridge family. <laughs> cannot keep that Danny Bonaducci in line. In 1969, a former MGM handyman turned millionaire, Kirk Korkian, Cobain, purchased a lot and sold most of it off to buy the MGM casino in Vegas. In 1970, at a stockholders meeting, Korkian, his handpicked president, announced that half of the remaining MGM staff would be fired. Most of the larger films in production were canceled and the foreign and music divisions were sold off. Almost everything was sold off and the old Hollywood dynasties pretty much all died off. That's the end (laughs) of all of that. And Hollywood was fixed forever. Those are the fixers. That's MGM. That's the kind of stuff that they were up to. I always thought of Eddie Mannix as sort of like a noble put upon sort of guy who is like, come on, Clark Gable, we got to get you out of your own vomit in this club. You you think it's a little bit like watching 30 Rock when Tracy Jordan is up to something. They like have to cover it up and put him on a news thing. We we can't let people know he was breaking into this reptile store. Exactly. Cute, cute stuff. Yeah. 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 That's upsetting. I'm I'm a little more interested now in Howard Strickland because he was sort of like a gentlemanly dapper guy who didn't cheat on his wife. Let's do another two and a half hour episode and get into it. But even if he was not like a brute like Eddie Maddox, he was still like up to nefarious stuff and covering up crimes for the benefit of MGM. I wonder if these people are still around. 
Strickland's like, dead. Yeah, no, uh, yeah. I wonder. If, <laughs> is Eddie Mann? Oh. Did he come back? From, did he survive the heart attack? I you wonder, wonder if, if there's, there's still fixers, fixers now. around. I bet there are. I bet I, Ray Donovan. Ray Donovan. Uh, whatever the show that it. Kerry Washington was in about politics. Uh, House of Cards probably too. Uh, Veep. Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, the West Wing. I bet there's still studio fixers, but like it's it much must be so much harder now that stars have social media and can post anything. Yeah, yeah. You, yeah. It's harder to control, and right. it probably just yeah, Eddie Mann just go to Instagram headquarters and pull out the files. But then again, like how many people helped Weinstein and Bill Cosby and R. Kelly cover things That's up That's what too. I'm kind of thinking about is like, it's almost like Eddie Mannix and those people set yeah. it so much in motion that yeah. like, we've all got it from here. Like yeah. we all know how it works. We're going to protect monsters forever. Right. Like we don't even need because you. they're investments and they mean money. And if we lose R. Kelly, where are we going to get money from another person? Who are we as America without R. Kelly? All right. So we're let's, let's uh, bring the mood up a little bit right now. It's the surf in 60s. Eddie Mannix on a surf. Holy crap. He's beating up the surfboard. The only thing worse than Eddie Mannix is Eddie Mannix. He's punching a shark. Okay. So this one, like I said before, I hated doing the research for this because yep. it, this is one of the, the stories that's just going to ruin oh, man. everything you thought you knew about every song that you like. Yeah. I remember they talked about it a little bit in Dana Gould's podcast and it was he was listing a couple things. I'm like, and I stopped it. I'm like, no. Yeah. I need, well, then, I need to think that. You're not going to like this then. Oh, yeah. But I do have a surprise. Okay. Uh, I've been teasing you with this surprise. You and you, dear listener, I've got a surprise for all of you in the middle of this okay. It's uh, a small segment. gun. <laughs> Everyone look under your seat. You remember it's what Chekhov said, right? The smoking surprise. <laughs> Chekhov smoking surprise, which is a type of cigarette that I, which is the new sponsor of this episode. <laughs> the smoking surprise cigarette company. Uh, the surprise is lung cancer. So we're going to get into my next one and our next behind the scenes thing. Okay. Here we go. Yeah. Check yourself before you wreck yourself, but check one too before you record with the wrecking crew. Whoa, that was actually <laughs> lyrical. That was pretty fun. That was a lot of fun. It took me three days to do that. <laughs> I started this uh, four years ago when we first talked about this episode. The marriage fell apart while I was writing this. Please, uh, please, please. Won't you be my husband? <laughs> that's what, that's what I'm going to say. Is that Check one shining? four. Which <laughs> one four? When you hear the clicking and clacking, yeah, that's the sound of me making puns. And if you hear me <laughs> making puns, don't come in. And Olive Oil is just like, okay. I'm going to tell you all about the most celebrated behind the scenes group of session session musicians. Boy, we should have warmed up more session, session musicians. Session musicians. Session, session musicians. Any, oh no. Eddie Mannix kicks. Eddie Mannix kicks. Eddie Mannix. <laughs> Eddie Mannix mans the manic. Uh, I had to read. A Hollywood Reporter article about Mannix, and it was literally written like it was written like a riddle. <laughs> and that's the Hollywood Reporter problem. Max Head Lion. What the hell does that mean? <laughs> oh, you don't have your Hollywood Reporter decoder <laughs> ring to understand what they're talking about. So, the most celebrated behind-the-scenes group of session musicians you may or may not have heard of, but after you're done listening to this, you're going to agree that they're all your favorite musicians. Yeah, and also you don't like any music anymore. It's weird. I thought I liked Dick Dale, but I actually like this person. <laughs> so, what is a session? musician right session musician i don't want to have another frank lloyd wright situation yes. situation you couldn't even make it through this low. <laughs> no i got his name right and then i got situation wrong <laughs> which is my favorite cast member from the jersey yeah, shore that's right you wouldn't stop talking about him so what is a session musician get ready for some massive disillusionment here god there's too many s's in all you this really regarding all the music you like so sorry in advance to all of you for okay. what you're about to hear in the early days of the music industry the god-awful truth is that most musicians were not actually musicians or if they were they weren't good musicians. Right. They were singers and those people may or may not have written their own songs 
but for the overwhelming majority of every popular band slash musician you've heard from everything up to pretty much the Beatles, they could not play their own right. songs. Which is weird. It is weird, but that's just the way it was yeah, yeah like, I, get that. I don't know how to play song oh yeah but then don't i could play like a green day song but that's about it i don't know how to play songs i better start a band <laughs> and record an album that's no that's the it's thought. i don't know how to play any songs oh this studio wants me to pretend to be a teen heartthrob okay i'll get paid in that money thousands of dollars for that anything you want ricky nelson can you play a song uh, yeah i got an mp3 player right here uh so well i have been known to tickle the keys a little <laughs> you pull out a grand piano <laughs> if they did play their own songs you wouldn't want to listen to what they had to play right like you don't want to listen to a ricky nelson's actual or trying to play oh. um my love is 16 or whatever these songs were called <laughs> so during the 50s up through the late 60s most bands were not actually playing on the songs you were hearing right. from them they were singing but not playing instruments okay that was done by session musician muse my god every single month they're, they're not even called session musicians they're called session players i don't know why you're making it harder on yourself i don't want to use too much lingo for these let's just say idiots that listen to us <laughs> They're not going to know. I mean, they're not in like you and me. You know, we sure we've been known to have a party or two in Laurel Canyon. uh, (laughs) Yeah, I once I saw the Woodstock movie. (laughs) These people, they don't get it. Yeah, I put on a suit and watch the Woodstock movie. just frown the whole yeah, time. Is bad. Why don't you wait for better weather? Is this uh, the weekend? Is that why you're not at work? Okay, so this was done by session musicians. Okay. Some might know them as players. Right. Who were highly skilled musicians. You might know them as players <laughs> uh, who could be called in, given some sheet music, play what they see, get paid and leave. This was especially true of one hit wonders because as the pop music teen idol factory machine really heated up in the 50s the business model was to find some rosy cheeked blonde boy who could sing have some songwriters write a song for them take them to the studio with the session band playing the music and release that track and if it was a hit they'd hire people to be their band so that they could go on tour and maybe make a whole album with this okay so they it's like wolfman from that thing you do no it's more like uh, the witcher where they take these uh, abandoned children and put you know poison them and send them through all <laughs> yeah, just yeah. stab them with swords so they can take the pain <laughs> this is what happened to ricky nelson so th- that's that's how okay. it works these session musicians Mm -hmm. however were the music industry's dirty little secret because the whole image of these bands and teen idols was that they were actually bands and teen idols so the money they made depended on the record labels maintaining the illusion that paul revere and the raiders were playing their own instruments when in fact they were not they not even the raiders i mean paul revere sure we all know he's a fictional character from history but (laughs) From a fictional history. <laughs> From a false American history that I will. I'm a, I'm a red coat. Red, I'm a turn, by the way. I'm a turncoat and a red coat. I should mention that. And when these bands would go on TV, they'd usually be fake strumming along to the recordings of the studio yeah. musicians, sometimes without the instruments even being plugged in. But like nobody, first of all, it's nobody would care. And yeah. second of all, who can see on the TVs that were like the size of a postage right. stamp. Until you start playing guitar and you get so irritated by the cables, you realize, hey, hey they don't wait a minute. Have a How thing? Come they're not being strangled by this really long cable. Yeah. Sometimes this was even a secret from the actual bands. Ooh. Like early on, Mike Nesmith was showed up to a recording session of the Monkees, right. guitar in hand, and had to be told by the producer that the Monkees were not a real band. Like uh, you're not going to be playing. That's like, not even his real hat. It's not even his real talent. <laughs> they were just actors and would not be playing on their albums. Yeah. At least for the first, for the Monkees, the first two albums were not the Monkees. And, and here's I, the real Monkees is like it's, four it's overage of, guys. I was going to say it's it. about like actual Monkees they chimps, brought out. Yeah. Which who could probably play better than uh, Peter Tosh. <laughs> not Peter Tosh. That's the yeah, guy from... The reggae guy. <laughs> Bob Marley, you know, he he wasn't real. Peter... Peter Torque. Torque, yeah. Peter not Torque. Peter Tosh. Yeah, Peter Torque. Wait, Peter Toth or Peter Tosh? 
Do I know music? I think it's Peter Tork. No, no, no. no. Yeah, the guy idiot. from the monkeys, but who's the guy from the whalers? Tosh. 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 Peter Tosh. Tosh.0. Tosh.0, yeah, right. remember? Peter Tosh.0. <laughs> Some bands needed session musicians because they couldn't play, but other times it was just because of how recording worked at the time. So there was multi-track recording that existed in the 50s and 60s, mm-hmm. but you could have at most four tracks to work with okay. and layer on top of each other, unlike today where every instrument and every sound has its own track. Right. So like, oh, we screwed up the, we squeezed an old bicorn, but we didn't quite get it right. We don't have to redo the entire album. Right, right, right. It's just the one track. And there's there's so many bicorns in today's music. Don't I was going to say, I feel like you're talking uh, about one particular Oingo Boingo song. And That's you will not all tell I, me which I one. only listen to music recorded by circus clowns. <laughs> So because of that, that they at most had four tracks to work with. And at the time, several instruments or even all the instruments had to be recorded on one track. So if one of the players screwed up on a note, the entire track was ruined, which was annoying and also really expensive because it's not like, oh, can we, you know, can we delete that? Can we build a new factory to make more tape that we can record on? That's why even if a band could play on their own songs, they usually wouldn't let them because they needed seasoned professionals whose job it was to not miss a note to get it done rather than the pacemakers flubbing through don't let the sun catch you crying because they're like 17 and inexperienced and then the record labels had to shell out another hundred dollars worth of studio time because you didn't practice your chords enough yeah you got an e when it should have been a c are you still going to high school we need you to practice a c chord take your backpack off and sit down we need you to practice the chord of what you get in school (laughs) e flat f that was another thing student that was you stop it. <laughs> stop talking about Gordo. Greg keeps touching his dog, and his dog is just so fat. He's plump for sure, but it means that he's loved. It, he's just large because he's overfed. <laughs> that was another thing. Studio space was scarce and oh, expensive right. because the record companies were trying to throw out as many Ricky Nelsons against the wall to see which right. one stuck. And I realized that probably shouldn't have. I probably shouldn't have used Ricky Nelson in that metaphor, but he's the first one that came to mind. You know, you know. How we'll change. Died. We'll change. How did Ricky Nelson die? A horrific car crash. Oh wow! I didn't know that. Yeah. That bumps me out. I really. I like Ricky Nelson and Eddie Mannix. <laughs> a long scrape and another set of tires. If I'm remembering correctly, Ricky Nelson died at like 17 or like no, he didn't. He, well, maybe I'm thinking of the wrong. Maybe I'm thinking of Ricky Martin. You're thinking of Summertime Blues. Eddie Cochran. Eddie Cochran. Cochran. That's right. I know a couple of things. Okay, let's just. Uh, could we get the editing crew to? Uh, <laughs> can we get? A, can I get a fixer to, <laughs> to strangle Craig yeah. for break, correcting me? Break his neck <laughs> and then put a studio session player in. Yeah, this whole uh, podcast should be recorded by uh, session podcasters. <laughs> we got to get this done quickly we can't have you two <laughs> making the same joke about back to the future for four hours but it's funny but to it's us funny. <laughs> to Come us yeah. plus the top artists in the 50s were putting out like two albums a year which would not be possible to do without session musicians who could churn those out really quick especially while the singer may have been out on tour while the band was recording the rest of the music for the album like the mechanism was becoming so well oiled and fine-tuned that like they knew like eddie cochran uh, now i shouldn't use this example but i was gonna say we have like six months to make money off of eddie cochran i don't mean because of the accident but because like ricky nelson was only so popular for so long yeah, yeah, like yeah. we got to get him on tour yeah, we got to get him on TV. you never know when the beatles are gonna play ed sullivan and, and, and they rip knew. everything apart they knew paul revere was riding around boston saying the beatles are the coming. beatles are coming the beatles are coming and, and i'm worried about my and career everyone was looking at the ground like no i don't they're not i coming. don't get it and behind the back 
And meanwhile, in Hamburg, Germany, a bunch of Nazi children were listening to the Silver Beatles. Okay, so all of this is to say session musicians were needed because music had to be done well and done quickly. But for all the reasons I just said, these people were usually kept uncredited and not even listed on the liner notes to maintain the illusion and glamour of being, for lack of a better term, an American Idol. Right. And every major recording studio had their house bands of session musicians. There was the Oklahoma Mafia in New Orleans for some reason. In, joke. in Nashville, there was the A-Team, not the one you're thinking of. Mm. Mr. With Mr. T, not the one you're thinking of. Uh, T-E-A. And Mr. T for Mr. Trombone. Uh, <laughs> it's a, a weird wrinkle in history, but he was afraid of flying. <laughs> Memphis had the Memphis Boys. Mm-hmm. I don't get that. Motown had the Funk Brothers and Muscle Shoals had the Swampers, as they say in Sweet Home Alabama. Now, Muscle Shoals has got the Swampers, and they've been known to pick a song or two. Yes, they do. Oh, God. Uh, you know, it's funny, not to go on a weird tangent, but, you know, I watched a lot of VH1 music history growing up. Yeah. They really built up the fight between Leonard Skinner and Neil Young. Like, it was like an epic battle, and it really, it because was just of that like, one line? The one line. <laughs> uh, hey, Southern did Neil Man. Young have some sort of Eddie Mannix to take? Did do what, do what he did to Leonard Skinner? I don't know. Check yeah. the plane tracks. <laughs> Some of these session musicians crossed over to being in the spotlight themselves. We'll get into a few from the Wrecking Crew a little bit later. But Jimmy Page used to be a session musician. Booker T and the MGs were originally the house band at Stax Records in Memphis. I believe that. And then they were like, I've got an idea. I just had a really good lunch and now I've got a really good idea for a song. (laughs) And it's the only song we'll ever play. (laughs) No, they had more Green Onions, which which is like the twist again, where it's like the same song, but like two of the notes are flipped. And I love it. Can't get enough of it. But let's bring this story specifically to L.A., shall we, Greg? The city we're in, the city of angels. Oh, I didn't know. The city of angels, like Eddie Mannix. (laughs) (laughs) L.A. was unique in the world of session musicians because of those moving pictures that flicker across that silver screen. Session musicians were not something that was needed when there was no sound, and it was just a guy attached to a piano and a bunch of sound effects improvising along to a Harold Lloyd movie. But once sound literally came into the picture, the studios formed sound departments to do the music so they hired a bunch of musicians who became the city's first batch of session musicians okay. who was working for movies uh, who I'm sure were being just abused nonstop oh, yeah, by, yeah, yeah. by Eddie Mannix and the rest. You call that <laughs> you an You call that a crescendo? You can either do a crescendo <laughs> or you could go live in Utah. You just send everyone to Utah. <laughs> this will uh, never blow up in my face. <laughs> That's how Salt Lake City was formed. Yeah. <laughs> it was out of these musicians that groups like the Hollywood Bowl Symphony Orchestra were formed in oh. 1945 and then which is it's weird to think about that like even today when you see the Hollywood Bowl orchestra it's like oh yeah these are just the guys that did like the Batman soundtrack yeah, yeah, yeah. And I have no idea who they are. This is where they come to jam. <laughs> they just let loose they just toke up on stage <laughs> and play John Williams soundtracks and then there were groups like the Hollywood String Quartet and the LA Woodwinds then later on groups like the LA Express and the Jazz Crusaders but then in the 50s two things started happening at the same time. The big old Hollywood studio era was starting to dissolve and rock and roll was starting to undissolve. This is the first I've heard of it. It'll never last. Alan Freed predicted this? I, I could take rock or roll, but rock and roll? Oh, no, 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 no. no, no. no. You'll, On you, this economy? Ballads are coming back. Just sweeping orchestral music. <laughs> Standards. Uh, it, it is Standards coming. never get old. Tony Bennett will always be on every college <laughs> student's poster. Because of this, the studios started dissolving their house orchestras and relied more on individual musicians playing just a few instruments. So as you started entering the 60s, you started getting soundtracks more like 
bullet and less and less like Ben Hur. Okay. And meanwhile, which was the Ben Hur of the fifties? <laughs> kind of. That's kind of true, actually. They did have a race. Scene. There was two big, ra- two big race scenes through the San Francisco of today and of the Roman era. Rome, Rome, <laughs> San Francisco, Rome, and we're both about Jewish heroes, <laughs> Jewish folklore heroes. My bar mitzvah was bullet. <laughs> All the women were dressed like Jacqueline Bisset. All the men were dressed like Steve McQueen. I know that this isn't a bullet, but now I'm thinking of go ahead, make my day, make my room. It's fun. Um, that was their invitation. <laughs> yeah, go a different and- San Francisco movie that kind of did the same thing for movies. But go ahead, make my haftorah. <laughs> um, and meanwhile, the recording studios needed a new kind of musician and a lot of this. Them, all to accommodate all the new recording studios that started popping up around town, like the Record Plant, Village Recorders, Conway, Dawnbreaker, Westlake, United Western, Sound City, Evergreen, Oceanway, Sound Factory, and Larrabee. There were just so many recording studios coming around in LA. So that was a ton of new work and a ton of new kind of work that the older players weren't interested in. So they started retiring out of the business. And this was the perfect storm that led to the Wrecking Crew. Oh, I have no idea what you're going to say next. Is this some sort of demolition thing? (laughs) Are you going to talk to me about a bunch of construction workers? (laughs) How does implosions work? So to emphasize just how many times you've heard these musicians and just how far their influence reaches, I've put together a little surprise for all of you. Oh my God. Okay. Let's let's see the surprise. (laughs) I I take out a top hat (laughs) and I'm dressed like (laughs) Judy Garland. (laughs) I've put together a little compilation to play that I hope will play well audio wise. I I need it. I just want to eat a little candy because I'm (laughs) hungry. This is my real surprise. Oh my God. (laughs) You're all going to hear me eat a piece of nougat. Happy 2022. So I didn't want to play this out loud because I didn't want to mess with the quality. So I'm going to drop the track in. So since my iPod is unreliable from the center click button, I couldn't handle that uh, not working in the moment. So I'm using Melissa's iPod touch. Okay. So that we can both plug our headphones into this and I can play the compilation I have made. Oh my God. So uh, let's not like none of this is going to work right. And the entire recording is going to get ruined. There's so many modern technologies to make this work and I'm not capable of figuring figuring out any of them. The most technologically advanced I'm getting is an iPod Touch. You're lucky this isn't an iPod Classic. I was about to ask. This is a snippet, a montage of songs I put together done by the Wrecking Crew. Okay. I tried to keep it mostly on the musical parts of it rather than the singing because the singing was the actual musicians. But the music you are about to hear is all or mostly done by the Wrecking Crew. Okay. Okay. Yep. Already... Get ready for disillusion. Yep. Also, this is going to be the most frustrating montage because you want to hear the rest yeah, of the song. It's the intro of every radio station. You're listening to KRX 101.59. Uh-huh. This was them. But their dad beat them if they couldn't play. This is Jan and Dean. Oh, this is Jan and Dean. Yeah, man, we still... Marie Wilson did beat them, too. Really? Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh, man. They're they're doing the the Ron part. Oh, now it's them. That's Marie Wilson. Just wait till you hear about how much of the Beach Boys are involved in this story. Really? They did the guitar. They didn't write these. Well, some of them. Yeah. They, Literally the best song I've ever heard in my life. Really? Uh-huh. It wasn't just 
rock and surf and Batman music. <laughs> had a guitar player had to learn how to play strings. Just be like, all right, Frankie. Oh, really? Well, it's just Harry Nelson, so of course there's studio players. Right. Oh my God, the Wrecking Crew played this perfect song. Everybody they played the horniest song from my favorite me. movie. <laughs> Do you not recognize this song? No, what is that? It's not going to get to the part. It's just frustrating. Everyone knows it's oh, windy. Right. Okay. Well, we already talked about the monkeys. This is no surprise. This should be no surprise to anybody. And these were actual chimps playing. Yeah. The yeah. actual chimps. Yeah, Greg. <laughs> okay. The aforementioned Partridge family. Oh my god. Yeah, this is a big part of the story in this song. It's almost an identifiable guitar twang to them now, except for this. They wrote this part. They came up with this really? Spanish guitar riff. Oh. I told you it's frustrating. <laughs> oh, man. The song I put on whenever I get ready for a, <laughs> uh, a big night out. Whenever I want to hear a gar- guitar get detuned. Oh, yep. Really? You are going to lose your mind about how little the Beach Boys were involved. Oh at my God! This, this, even this. There's only two people. They had to get a fake. Th- this is like seven people playing. Yeah, these eight. Yeah. This oh. is the song that me and Melissa had our first dance to. Really? And yeah, you were there. Remember? I don't remember. Somehow I sober remember less. Okay. This one makes sense because I can't imagine either one of them playing a guitar. Oh. They played this. A perfect song. Whatever this. And this. Oh. This is also what I put on when I'm getting ready for a night Just out. Just like eight people having to shovel, like overworked, smoking, just being like, play a song about a panther. Oh, they play can he too there were no real bands no that's you, what's so this whole time we'll be breaking that. cds breaking cassette tapes okay this one i can out they also don't play this anymore. is a huge you, yeah. we'll get into it in a few okay. seconds they like define the sound of the 60s basically they define music this is a big one Wait. Elvis isn't even real. Can I do <laughs> and that was my <laughs> little montage. I, like you, you can't even not do that. That's the thing about you. I, I should have expected that. I put this whole thing together, and just on almost like in a trance of a, <laughs> of an impulse, I had to put. Urkel in You're an insane person. You're like the Riddler. <laughs> so that was my little montage, which I've got kind of proud of. That, you, you should be that, proud that of that. Perfect. This is also part of my reel. For sanity. <laughs> so that's just a smattering of things. Those are all iconic songs. Everything you like is done by the Wrecking Crew. Okay. I almost wanted to say what the Batman theme, and I didn't want to say it early on because I'm like, don't jinx it. Yeah, you can't. You have it. a history of stepping on uh, the truth. Yeah. My truth. By being ridiculous, <laughs> suddenly wandering blindly into truth. <laughs> now let's hope that syncs up. It's all going to be like. 
I know. Yeah. Wow, Elvis when there's like the monkeys playing. <laughs> okay, so the group of musicians who played all of the songs you just heard started yeah. in some form in the early to mid 50s led by bassist Ray Pullman. But the group that came to be as we now know it started in the early 60s all thanks to a local wig enthusiast. <laughs> Named Phil Spector. Oh my God, Phil Spector. Is this his wall of sound? He was developing a new sound and a new wall (laughs) that would match his inner insanity. That would be a layering of instruments and reverb and recording techniques that would provide just a relentless sheet of music. No silence getting through. Nothing. You can't, not a moment to breathe. Yeah. Uh, Buster Keaton could have used this wall on his, <laughs> miss, the missing wall on his house. It, this would lay underneath people singing that was incredible and unlike anything heard before then, right. this was known as the Wall of Sound and the first of these songs was Be My Baby by the Ronettes in 1963 and then he perfected it in You've Lost That Loving Feeling by the Righteous Brothers yeah. in 1965. But to create this sound, he needed highly skilled musicians who could handle what he envisioned like a bullet to the mouth. So he pulled to together all the best session musicians in LA and what he got was a group who came to be known as Phil's Regulars. Okay. Uh, And he was in LA recording all that. Yes, this was all done in LA. The only city that would tolerate hair like his. (laughs) They were younger musicians who started getting jobs in the late 50s, early 60s because of the changing of the guard that I talked about with the older guys retiring because they felt rock and roll was beneath them and that's all there really was anymore and they didn't want to play rock and roll. These guys born in like 1870 don't want to play rock and roll. Wearing a powdered wig. Yeah. No, I shan't. I shan't. I simply shan't. A hound dog? Like the ones I go on the hunt with? (laughs) A song about them? How about about the whips that we whip our horses with? I'll check my calendar again, but I believe there's only seven days a week. (laughs) Love me, don't. Go ahead. And that's all the songs I could think of real quick. So these younger people stepped up and once they got pulled together by Phil Spector, they were suddenly the musicians responsible for the new sound of music and suddenly they were the most desirable session musicians in the world. They used to call themselves the Click or the First Call Gang, but it wasn't until decades later in 1990 when one of the drummers in the group, Hal Blaine, wrote a memoir where he gave them a new name that they're now known as the Wrecking Crew. So they were never known as the Wrecking Crew until today basically yeah you know they were known as anything because they were supposed to be a secret exactly (laughs) they were known as the monkeys (laughs) they were called the wrecking crew because the old session players who were retiring used to come to work in full suits but these young kids were showing up in levi's and t-shirts they were less formal and were collaborating with the artists and producers rather than just doing exactly as they were told and were embracing rock and roll music so they felt that they would wreck the industry with their rebel without a cause lifestyles and their dungarees yeah so it's hard to say exactly how many people and who were in the wrecking crew because there was a lot of turnover over right. several years and it was also pretty informal the way they would be hired for jobs. It was rarely, if ever, all of them at the same time hired for one job. So it would just be a few of them would show up and they'd be working with a few others who were part of this group and also they were rarely, if ever, credited. So it's hard to keep record. But at different points, there were over 50 people who could consider themselves a part of this crew with about 30 people in it at any given time. Wow, okay. So it's not, you know, the four the core eight, the four yeah. piece band. There yeah. was sort of a core, but like there were so many people that just came and went and they all lived in LA, but had come from all over the country and were all unbelievable musicians. Most of them came from jazz or classical backgrounds and could sight read music like it was English. And the ones that couldn't had great ears and could replicate anything they heard just yeah. hearing it one time. They could Rhapsody in Blue hear it one time and I can play it on the mandolin. Like I said, there was a core of a handful of players that were 
consistently a part of the crew throughout their heyday. Mm -hmm. There was Hal Blaine, like I said, on drums. That's the guy who wrote the memoir later. He was born Harold Simon Belsky on February 5th, 1929 in Holyoke, Massachusetts to Lithuanian and Polish immigrant parents. Cool. He started as a drummer for various touring bands across the U.S. in the 50s, playing casinos and supper clubs in small theaters until 1957. He got hired to play with a teen idol named Tommy Sands, who I, again, like, they come and go. I have no He's idea lost who Tommy, the Tommy Sands of time. <laughs> You're telling me you don't still have your Tommy Sands poster up on the wall? Who are you? From that, he made connections to become a regular studio session musician and created his own sound that was the style that took the mamas and papas to the next level and made them stars. Like wow. their sound was, was responsible. The drumming of Hal right. Blaine was responsible for what they sounded like. He became the first drummer of choice in the entire recording industry, playing on over 35,000 songs <laughs> oh with everyone from God. the Carpenters to Gary Lewis and the Playboys. That's it. I mean, like, I know that you've already explained why they were needed, but it's crazy that, like, the hype of the Carpenters is, like, it's a brother and sister, and they play their own instruments, and I she's know. a wicked drummer. And then, like, oh, actually, it was this other guy. Uh, yeah. <laughs> she could occasionally be a wicked drummer. <laughs> Hal Blaine's drums are the drums crashing on the last parts of Bridge Over Troubled Water. Wow, okay. The drummers for both the Birds and the Association were very upset to be replaced by him on their recordings. <laughs> there was also Larry the Legend Knetchel, born right here in Bell, California. California in 1940. Oh, cool. He was a keyboardist who got brought into those Phil Spector recording sessions. And from there, he became the keys player of choice for many, many producers. He actually did the piano on Bridge Over Troubled Water oh, okay. and also the organ on Good Vibrations. Oh, wow. Okay. The, with like the breakdown, like. They make an appearance in the Brian Wilson movie. They, they show them recording um, Good Vibrations and you, you see there's that one recognizable woman in Wrecking Crew who like... Carol if you, Kay. Carol Kay. If she you, has a name, Grant. She's not just a... She's not just a she's bass. She's not just a bass player with a great sense of fashion that has uh, <laughs> identifiable mark. But you, you see, I think you see session players there and then Brian Wilson Wait is till you hear, obsessively screaming at them. I'm going to ruin pet sound. I'm going to ruin pets. I'm oh. going to ruin everything from Here's, 1950 to... You're not going to like music anymore until... <laughs> uh, until Voice to Men comes out, <laughs> I swear. He played more instruments than anybody in the group, also playing the bass on Mrs. Robinson, the harpsichord on I Think I Love You, and the wah-wah guitar on Guitar Man. Wow. Yeah. I'm just going to... We sound so good, I think. I'm just going to take out that montage. We're just going <laughs> to sing all the songs. No, that's... I think I love you. <laughs> what am I so afraid of? I'm afraid of that. I'm not sure of a love that I don't care for. say? Um, needless to say, the Turtles and the Association were both jealous of Knetchel and wanted him to die. The, the Turtles uh, or the Birds? The Turtles and the Association. Okay. I'm sure the Birds... The, mean, birds, the Birds, too. The you brought up the, the Birds earlier, yeah. yeah. Everyone wanted these people to die. Okay, that's fair. There was the Irreplaceable... And fashionable. Carol Kay. Carol Kay. Who was oh so cool. She was born yeah. Carol Smith in Everett, Washington and started playing guitar at 13 and then professionally at age 14 in 1949 working in big bands and she was doing bebop music as okay. a 14 year old. A 14 year old white girl from Everett is playing with like Charlie Parker. I don't know if that's true but it could be. <laughs> then in 1957 she got her first recording session gig playing guitar for Sam Cooke on <laughs> Summertime. <laughs> oh really? It's insane. This child was yeah. playing... It's it's yeah, it's just crazy to think about this, yeah. which led to playing guitar for the Righteous Brothers and also the rhythm guitar. And there's some question on whether or not it was actually the lead guitar 
on La Bamba wow. with Richie Valens, who she said was very nice to her. <laughs> I think her likeness is used in Maisel. And if she's still alive, I think she was like, that's she's not what I was again. like. Uh, she lived long enough to see the marvelous Mrs. Maisel, <laughs> as all anybody could hope for. Yeah. One day in 1963 at a Capitol Records recording session, the bassist that was supposed to be there didn't show up. So she picked up the bass. And from then on, she became the most desirable bass player in the recording industry. She ended up playing bass on over 10,000 sessions, <laughs> including California Girls, okay. Okay. Good vibrations. She came up with the baseline in the beat goes on because really? the one Sonny and Cher came up with, as she put it, laid there like a dead dog. So yeah, the boom. Here, here's another yeah. rendition. Do it, do it. Boom, 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 boom. Man, <laughs> uh, she came up with that. It's crazy. Like not just yeah. played it. She wrote that yeah. baseline. She did the bass on a Natural Man by Lou Rawls. Several Motown records that were actually recorded in L.A., which I didn't know. Yeah, that I didn't know that. That's Motown. why I was gonna. That's why I asked you earlier about full spectrum recording in L.A. Because I'm like, oh, they did a lot yeah like i said you'll never look at phil Spector the same way again la is uh is the session player for motown we do a great uh body double for detroit (laughs) she did the bass on the shaft theme oh wow that's a a heavily bass theme she's a great bass player she could dig it she did the bass on the brady bunch theme song hawaii 50 the adams family and of course the cosby show (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Brian Wilson said she was the best player he ever met. You mean the musical genius Brian Wilson? Brian, said- w- okay, listen to this. Paul McCartney once said Brian Wilson's bass playing on Pet Sounds changed his entire bass style for the Beatles. Little did he know the bass on Pet Sounds was played by Carol Kay. So Carol Kay influenced Paul McCartney <laughs> playing absolutely wild. It's insane. Yeah. And on top of all that, she was one of the rare female session musicians and the only woman who was part of the Wrecking Crew. Uh, she said that there were never any problems. She said, I had no problems being the only woman. In fact, I probably harassed them. Uh, Eddie Maddox could clean that yeah. up right away. There was also Earl Palmer from New Orleans who tap danced on stage with his mom in the 30s, fought in World War the second one where tap shoes had to be melted down into bullets. <laughs> tap along like the... the <laughs> a bullet hit me, but it just kind of tapped against me. So. He tapped all the way up Iwo Jima. Um, and post-war, he learned to play the drums and ended up playing with both Fats Waller and on Tutti Fruity with Little Richard in essence helping create rock and roll music. This was before he was with the Wrecking Crew but he came into the Wrecking Crew. There was Plas Johnson on sax who played on the Pink Panther theme song. There was Barney Kessel who was the person who made the 12 string guitar popular in rock and pop music after he used it on Then He Kissed Me by the Crystals in 1963 as part of Spectermania. Spectermania meant something else from the 2000s. In the court. Yeah, in the court. Legally, Spectermania you can arrest for that. (laughs) He was claiming the Spectre Mania defense. Uh, what did you say about 12-string guitar? I don't know. I guess I don't know what string, Okay, so there's six strings in a yeah, guitar, and 12-string is like... Twice as much. <laughs> let me get a calculator. No, but I don't know what that sounds like, I guess, so I'm trying to play it's, then it's gets me. Each one string, there's another string just close to it that's playing the low, or the higher harmony oh, higher. of okay. it. Think of like George Harrison almost. And oh, like okay. that Like it has just like right. a, a sort of like chimey sort of sound. Oh, okay, okay. So he brought that sound into the 60s. I can kind of hear it in that song too. Yeah, here, let me do my rendition. rendition. Oh, yeah, D. that's it. <laughs> that was an E. 
My dog doesn't respond to that. It was a sound that kind of defined West Coast pop and sort of yeah. 60s music in general. Mm-hmm. He also played the mandolin on Wouldn't It Be Nice. Uh, you'll notice that the Beach Boys come up a lot. Yeah. There was Tommy Tedesco on guitar who did the guitar amongst a thousand other things for the theme songs to The Twilight Zone, Killer. Green Acres, Bonanza, oh MASH, Batman, Mission Impossible, and Hawaii Five-0. Those he was are, playing the guitar on, and those are guitar heavy. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And you just listed my favorite theme songs. Every single one of those. Maybe not. Um, Mash one, is my favorite. Mash theme maybe song. not, is, but the rest of them, like, oh, those are the best theme songs I've ever. Like Bonanza. The guitar yeah. is so iconic, and all of those things. Yeah. And it was all Tommy Tedesco, and uh, he was on every single Monkeys album. <laughs> he was also the main focus of the documentary on the Wrecking Crew that came out in 2008, oh, right, which okay. is good. It's made, it's made by his son, so obviously, oh, obviously he's, he's the focus. Yeah. There were many, many others that this is not the place to get into them all, but they were all just as good as these people I just mentioned. Their ability to play was unmatched, and there were so many of them that they could cover you for any instrument you needed. They were also so adaptable and could play literally any type of music you needed them to. So one day they'd be playing on Pet Sounds, the next day they'd be playing for Frank Sinatra, the next day they'd be doing a movie score, then a TV theme song, then a commercial jingle. Like, they could do anything. They could also improvise like no other. Producers and musicians knew that, so they encouraged them to do whatever they felt was right with their songs because they knew that whatever they would do always made it better. And more importantly, they trusted them. They came to them for a reason because they were the best at what they did. They were better than the people. That, that's we amazing. That I, I thought they were maybe limited to a certain kind of sound, but it's crazy that you could one day wake up and like, okay, I got to play. I'm going to play Strangers in the Night. Yeah. Right? And then tomorrow <laughs> I have to play like, wouldn't it be nice? So like I said, they did pretty much all the music on Pet Sounds. And for Brian Wilson to trust you is no small feat yep. either. He'd just tell them what he was going for and what he wanted to feel, and they would come up with the music. They would on pet come sounds. up with the music. One of the best albums out there. I know. Okay, you cannot discount that that's Brian Wilson's right. album. But yeah, it wasn't necessarily like, play this note, this note. Yeah, like, yeah. I want to feel like I'm walking on the beach at sunset. And somebody and had a riff do it. for that. It's unbelievable. That's crazy. They were the monkeys for the first two albums. Yeah. It was the Wrecking Crew. They were the birds on Mr. Tambourine Man because Columbia Records knew how important that single was going to be and they didn't feel that any of the birds other than Roger McGuinn were good enough to make it work and just a reminder David Crosby was in the birds and they didn't let him play on that track like they knew like this is going to change music like they yeah. knew how important this song was going to be and it was yeah and they couldn't let the musicians let, in the band play they it. couldn't let david crosby they're like eh, that guy is yeah, not like we gotta him. get this right i don't yeah. think david crosby can do it i can't argue with them well history has proven them right <laughs> for the first few records of herb alpert and the tijuana brass Ooh. there was no tijuana brass it was herb alpert and the wrecking crew from the years of 1966 to 71 the grammy for record of the year went to songs that the wrecking crew played on Herb Albert and the Tijuana Brass for A Taste of Honey in 1966, Frank Sinatra's Stranger Than Night in 1967, song. The Fifth Dimension's Up, Up, and Away in 1968. I don't know. Up, Up, and Away. I just, I oh, think okay. I might have had that on the montage. I kind of My know beautiful, it. my beautiful. Greg, I sound so good. <laughs> I don't need anyone to step in it and It might do just this. be all of that speed. Uh, <laughs> Skating uh, that I've been doing. <laughs> for legal reasons. <laughs> then there was Simon and Garfunkel's Mrs. Robinson right. in 1969, The Fifth Dimension's Aquarius slash mm. Let the Sunshine In in 1970, and Simon and Garfunkel's Bridge Over Troubled Water in 1971. 
all Wrecking Crew songs. Wildly different songs. Hal Blaine alone played on over 140 top 10 hits and about 40 number one hits. That's crazy. They were the most requested session musicians in Los Angeles and it showed because their schedules make me want to go into a coma. They were working with literally every record label and studio in town. Gold Star Studios at 6252 Santa Monica Boulevard, Western Recorders at 6000 Sunset, Radio Recorders at 932 Western, CBS Studios, RCA Victor, Columbia, Liberty, Dunhill, A&M, Capitol. They'd just be told where to go and what instrument to bring. Some of them were doing four recording sessions a day. Oh my God. One of them said, you leave home at seven o'clock in the morning and you're at Universal at nine till noon. Now you're at Capitol Records at one. You just have time to get there. Then you got a jingle at four. Then we're on a date with somebody at eight. Then the Beach Boys at midnight and you do that five days a week. Oh my God. (laughs) Al Casey said, you couldn't tell how busy you were by the amount of work you took. It was the amount of work you turned down. Right. Like that's how you know if it's going to be a good year for you. <laughs> in 1967 alone, Earl Palmer played in 450 sessions. Needless to say, family life was not something a lot of them were able to hold on to, but they got paid very well thanks to the union that they were in. Oh, so cool. Everyone, I was going to ask about that. Go thank your union. Please. <laughs> Everybody just, if you haven't already today, go thank your union. Do what Walt Disney did and go thank their union. Which is part of the reason why they loved working with Brian Wilson so much mm-hmm. because being in a union means overtime and Brian Wilson <laughs> was working on pet sounds eight bars at a time. Why? Because he had OCD? In three hour sessions. So he'd give them enough overtime to retire just on good <laughs> vibrations alone. Good vibration is the state my body is in right now because I've gone so long without sleep. <laughs> Ew. They cost a lot. <laughs> Ew. They cost a lot, but if you wanted your song to sound as good as it possibly could, you shelled out the money for the Wrecking Crew because sometimes it also balanced out in the savings in studio time because they could nail a song in just one or two takes, unless you're with Brian Wilson. But that didn't mean they actually liked all the music they were playing. Tedesco said, believe me, I didn't get excited about the Batman theme. The heartbreak Why that just crossed your not? face. That's the greatest this song This guy time. who's classically trained guitarist, can you play something that uh, a child can <laughs> taunt their friends with? That's the beauty of it. It was just a job for him, just like Batman. The best description I heard was that they were like factory workers. They said one day you'd be making a Rolls Royce and the next day you were making a Pinto, which is the Batman theme song. <laughs> Carol Kay felt totally unfulfilled with playing what she saw as disposable rock and roll music. Yeah. She said it was the, it was the monkey that made me want to quit the business. <laughs> I said to myself, geez, I hate this music. <laughs> it's so uncreative. A lot of them felt the same way and would play jazz during whatever free time they had just to stay sane. Right. Like they needed artistic fulfillment. But it was a job they had to do because the percentage of musicians who can make a living actually, you know, being musicians is infinitesimal. Like keyboardist yeah. Don Randy said, we were all starving. You could make more money playing rock and roll than jazz any day. Oh, yeah, yeah. So as much as it might might have killed them inside to play the opening riff on incense and peppermints or whatever. They still recognized and were grateful for how lucky they were to be able to be paid a good yeah. living wage to be doing something that they loved, which was making music. Right. Like they were still doing what they loved. I would pay really good money if they all put a playlist together of what they were listening to and what they did like. It would like. just be jazz. jazz. It's it just, just going to be a John It's a 14 minute, yeah. yeah. And you're not going to want to listen to it. Here to Oscar Peterson, yes, please don't play him. Please, it's long. And here's my guitar rendition of Rachmaninoff. <laughs> and they put the rock in Rachmaninoff. Their motto was TTMR, meaning take the money and run. But never ever did that mean phoning it in or taking advantage of an artist. And anyone who did that was kicked out of the wrecking crew. Right? They, they took their job seriously and they respected these musicians, even if they 
you know, didn't like him. I don't like Peter Tosh Boy, no. Uh, you'd get folded into the group by your reputation as a musician, but if you were a jerk, you were cut out without hesitation. That's great. Um, That's a great system. It is. They were really a big family and they all got along, but at the same time, they had to protect their reputation. So you had to be good to keep up. So if you kept screwing up takes and slowing everyone down, you were out. Yeah. Like you are not going to, you're not going to ruin all of our reputation because you can't play a G7. Yeah, yeah. Uh, which is like the, it's like the easiest chord. You want me to sing a G7? Ringo, <laughs> get ready for this. <laughs> not moving no, he's dancing that's a that's an e- he's <laughs> having a nightmare uh during the 60s there was no drug use going on because they were so busy and their livelihood depended on being able to record an entire album in six hours so yeah. if you were wandering in in a fur coat with yoko ono by your side again you were out what a perfect system that is uh, yeah well, it, am i am i am i stupid for being like that's great it sounds good it sounds like yeah the people are taking care of themselves but then look at what happened with eddie mannix <laughs> maybe it's not <laughs> this is what happens when good people are looking after <laughs> <laughs> other people. So their music solidified the sound of the 60s and 70s and because of that they were mostly responsible for helping draw the pop music industry out of the Brill building in New York City and bringing it to LA making us the top recording destination in the US with the Wrecking Crew as the top recording session musicians. But they were not at all ego driven either. Their shared feeling about it all as one of them put it was you take the ramp up and eventually you get to the top but it's not about staying at the top. It's about taking that ramp down as long as possible wow. like you're not it, it was yeah. not like i'm the star it's just like i want to ride this yeah, career as long. as long as i can because i can't do anything yeah because the second that like punk and hip-hop takes over i oh, think i might be out greg you're getting too ahead of me <laughs> carol k said we were in the business of making stars we didn't want to be stars ourselves right that being said there are several notable exceptions from the wrecking crew i'll go in ascending shock value of, right, right, of right. jim keltner went on to play drums on tour with ringo star and his all star band and also the traveling Wilburys. Cool. So, you know, that's I, a real deal. It's a big deal, but you haven't fainted yet. Creed Bratton went on to be in the grassroots and also The Office. That's right. Um, I met him. You met Creed Bratton? Yeah. At The Office? What you you know that movie that I worked on that oh, you went to that? Canada and I got stuck making a movie? Uh, <laughs> I'm like, is that your daughter? It wasn't his daughter. Uh, he was one of the ones that got fired from the group, actually. Uh, Larry Knetchel became a member of Bread. Oh, okay. Sonny Bono might have played drums with them for a little bit, but I can't find concrete proof of that. Valley Boy Jim Gordon went on to be, that's not his full nickname, that's what I He went to be the commissioner of uh, Gotham City. He heard that Batman theme. He's like, I gotta, I gotta, report to I gotta get involved. <laughs> he went on to be the drummer in Derek and the Dominoes oh, wow, and okay. co-wrote Layla with Eric Cla- with the now insane Eric Clapton. Always insane. Uh, Maybe there was something in this band because later <laughs> in life he developed some sort of schizophrenia and had to leave sessions because he felt the other musicians were trying to take his soul. Oh, okay. He then started doing heroin and in 1983 beat his mom to death in her house in North Hollywood. Wow. So, but then there were the th- big three alumni that okay. people who know about the Wrecking Crew have been screaming at me this whole time. First, there was pianist Mac Rebenack, who left the group to start his solo career with his new name, Dr. John, and sang oh, the hit, wow. right, right Place, Wrong Time. I'm also man of right place. Place. Wrong time. Hang on, I'm going to sing a, a G. <laughs> huh. He's he's too tired now. He's far too tired of listening to stories. Then there was little Claude Russell Bridges from Lawton, Oklahoma, who came to L.A. at age 16 and lied about his age to get session work and finding himself in the wrecking crew until he went off on his solo career with his new name, Leon Russell. (laughs) And then, of course, there was Glenn Campbell, who was a foundational member of the wrecking crew known for his great solos on songs like Dance, Dance, Dance and I Get Around, both by the Beach Boys. He branched off in the late 
60s, but he used the Wrecking Crew for all of his songs. That's he fantastic. was like a huge part of the Wrecking Crew. Yeah. Glenn Campbell. Like a rhinestone cowboy. The, the, the legendary Glenn Campbell was a session musician. That's fantastic. I didn't know that. But as a song, I don't think they played on said, all things must pass. <laughs> the Wrecking Crew, they might have. Maybe they did. The Wrecking <laughs> I have to question every song now. I know. I don't even. It did, was George Harrison real or was it just like a, a Wizard of Oz situation? <laughs> Pay no attention to the Beatle who wants to be more involved. The Wrecking Crew started to unravel, not because of any drop in quality of their playing, but rather a general raising of the quality of music in general. Right. Their peak was around 1967 to 68, but around then a shift started happening because the new trend in music around then became focused on authenticity and bands playing their own instruments on their own songs, which is the style of music that dominated the 70s. This was the time of the bands like Led Zeppelin, Pink Floyd, The Who, The Eagles, The Doobie Brothers, Chicago, and Queen. Suddenly, the entire music industry changed, and it was of the utmost importance that people not only think bands played their own songs, but that they actually did play (laughs) their own songs. And where did that trend start? Sgt. Pepper. And where did Sgt. Pepper come from? Pet Sounds. And who played all the music on Pet Sounds? The Wrecking Crew. They so ate themselves a, they, alive. They Ouroboros. <laughs> they were responsible for their own demise. God. Also, in the early 70s, the musicians' union started requiring rhythm sections to be credited on album sleeves. So even if they wanted to, they couldn't keep up that illusion right. of, this is the monkeys. Yeah. <laughs> no matter how much Mike Nesmith might be screaming outside of Capitol <laughs> Records to be let in. I'm in the monkeys. The monkeys aren't real. <laughs> Opportunities and jobs for session musicians started dying up and some of the guys in the crew started doing drugs and things just kind of slowly unraveled. Mm. A saving grace for a while actually was disco because it needed a ton of instruments, but then the 80s hit. Mm -hmm. Uh, And also as disco was for all of us, a saving grace for when when we needed it most. So the 80s hit, cue the 80s montage. A mall opens its doors and a girl with two frizzy hair roller skates inside. A crowd of people who just got out of a screening of Time Bandits rushes over to the Cinnabon. Reagan's eating a jelly bean on top of the Berlin Wall with the guy with a birthmark on his forehead. Everybody has those Run DMC hats. (laughs) Michael Jackson makes music so good we all swear he must be sane. (laughs) Cocaine is the new Fen Fen. Anthony Michael Hall is killing it on S SNL. Daniel was born uh, and we're all caught up. The Olympics happened somewhere. There were at least three Olympics. With the 80s came two things. Keyboard synthesizers and bitchin' leg warmers and drum machines. Right. Studios started using these in the same way that they used to use actual humans in the wrecking crew. So these were just two more nails in the coffin that was already sealed on pretty tight as it was. A lot of musicians fled to the movie studios around this time because record work was drying up. But then another big rusty nail came down in that coffin lid VHS tape because when home video became a thing the movie studios didn't want to pay the union fees for royalties on the session musicians so instead they would record movie soundtracks overseas or worse Seattle where the musicians (laughs) there had seceded from the union so they didn't have to deal with those pesky keeping food on the table fees for those nasty musicians and then I'm sure another problem came in 1990 again because of Seattle in 1992 (laughs) and then came Dave Grohl and his (laughs) dastard friends. Plus, more and more movies were using pop songs on soundtracks instead of bands. So by this point, the Wrecking Crew was over by right. the 80s. They all just had to go their own ways to find their own method of surviving, be that going to Nashville or teaching bass at UCLA like Carol Kay was. Mm. She also wrote over 30 books on how to play bass, which is how a young British boy named Gordon Sumner learned to play so well, he had to change his name to Sting. He doesn't even play bass anymore. How good uh, is all he? All he does is have tantric sex. Um, <laughs> and pop up in Dune for some reason was he in oh the, you didn't oh. see the new dude uh i only new dude 
I knew Doom. <laughs> Golly, but I like the one by David Lynch. Shucks. Shucks. I love David Lynch. That was the best movie because I knew what was happening. <laughs> I loved it so much because that worm looked so suggestive. <laughs> is this Beetlejuice? But their influence and legacy is undeniable. Carol Kay alone was maybe the most influential non-singing woman in the music industry. Hal Blaine's records are unmatched by anyone in the music industry and will never be matched again, probably. Mm-hmm. And all of this without any recognition outside of the people behind the scenes. In the late 60s, people like them started to get a tiny bit of recognition when bands like the Rolling Stones and the Beatles would publicly use session people on their albums like Billy Preston. But it wasn't until that memoir came out that the Wrecking Crew started to get what they deserved. Hal Blaine and Earl Palmer were inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 2000 as sidemen. And then in 2007, the entire Wrecking Crew were inducted into the Musicians Hall of Fame. But this was arguably the most recorded band of all time. And if you want to look at it that way, they're the most popular band that there ever was and ever will be. But my question to them is, can they play bang the drum all day as well as my electric keyboard can? <laughs> I don't think that they can. I don't think they can. I don't think they can play Echo and the Bunny Man. You think they could handle a song by the Ramones? <laughs> That's fascinating. Disillusioning, but also like pretty cool. Uh, it's good to give credit where credit is due, exactly. but it sucks that I can't be like, you know, check out the association really knew how to play the guitar while they're just standing by, like behind oh the God. glass scowling at them. You brought up Billy Preston. Watching um, Get Back, I don't know if you got into the part yet, but like Spoiler everything alert. is so depressing and everything everyone's so sad and you're watching these four people fall apart and one of the you know greatest bands of all time they're falling <laughs> apart and no one's happy and then billy preston comes and literally them and you as an audience like yay the hero's here and i'm like oh, oh thank god oh, thank god <laughs> an adult is here he's like younger than them oh thank can god can you please tell john lennon to put on a regular jacket can you like distract yoko for a couple minutes <laughs> i wonder if that's how they felt about studio musicians coming in of like the wilson brothers and michael love being like oh thank god well that was another thing that i didn't really have room to fit in like the beach boys were on tour while the Wrecking Crew were recording Beach Boys albums. That's insane. And then the Beach Boys would yeah. come and sing the tracks. That's insane. It, it's crazy. Yeah. But yeah, look, sorry for ruining everything. <laughs> uh, sorry that you can't enjoy anything anymore. We ruined all celebrities yeah, we, from- We, we the, ruined old Hollywood old and we ruined the 60s West <laughs> and Coast And the golden pop. era of pop music. Okay, so we've got a listener question okay. before we wrap up today. This one is from Bionic Dave. Oh, hi, Bionic Dave. He's a session. He's yeah, a session. Yeah. He's fan, actually, right? he's the third member of Ellie Meekly. Uh, he's on, one of the 73rd members of yeah, Ellie Meekly. He's the Billy Preston, <laughs> which is the Stuart Sutcliffe of the Beatles. Okay, scenario here. Two birthday party invitations on the same day. Farrell's and Castle Golf which do you go to? And I had to explain to you what Farrell's was. Farrell's is an ice cream place, but I think they're all, all closed by now. I think he meant Fossilman's. Oh, okay, okay. The ice cream place Fossilman's. And Castle... Castle Park, the miniature golf place in, in, Sherman, in Oaks. Uh, Sherman Oaks. That's right. God, you know, I love Fossilman's, but I can't have ice cream. I know, this one is easy for you. So I'd have to go to Castle Park because they have a really good pizza at the little... Uh, yeah. Well, I mean, I, I had it like you know, 12 <laughs> years ago. I mean, the only pizza I eat is Red Baron, so yeah, it's pretty good pizza. <laughs> yeah, what, what do you say? Okay, I really don't know. But oh I think God. it depends on how hungry I am that day. Because yeah. famously, I ran out of your car as it was still moving to get into Fossilman's because yep. I was so hungry for you, ice cream. Yeah. But it depends what they're offering. Like, okay, do I have to pay for my ice cream? Right, or is right, there right. like an ice cream bar that I can make, let's say, seven trips back to? Because <laughs> most places will cap me at six. Yeah, 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 yeah. And those places should be locked up. It really depends. If I'm if I'm really in the mood for ice cream, if I'm really hungry, I'm going to Fossilman's. But there's so much more fun to be had at Castle Park because yes. there's the arcade, there's yes. the miniature golf. The food there is pretty cheap. Uh-huh. While it may not be as good as Fossilman's, this pizza tastes so affordable. Um, uh, yeah, no, <laughs> this it's, 
tastes like a good arcade pizza. <laughs> this pizza tastes like Pac-Man. Yeah, I haven't been to Castle Park in a, a minute, but I, I really enjoyed myself there. And Fossil Man, I just fun. can't do much at. Yeah, I guess. Okay, I'm going to... Okay, because they do have ice cream yes. at Castle Park. It's just not Fossilman's. So I, I think I'm willing to take the downgrade in quality of ice cream over the fun I can have at the rest of the park as long as I get a free handful of tokens for the arcade. That's fair. That's yeah. the, and as that's, long as I'm getting something for free, I'll be there. It's incredibly <laughs> that's fair. That's the of one you. I'll choose. Okay, let's let hands down. One hand down. As long as the other hand is filled with free arcade tokens, <laughs> we are going to Castle Park. We'll go to, and we'll go right now. And you know what? I expect free ice cream <laughs> as well. Uh, you know what? Hands down, we would be forever grateful if you could leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. That would be very nice of you. Or anywhere on you know, Stitcher, whatever. But it helps us get more recognizable, mm-hmm. more respectable, more noticed, more higher in the rankings, yeah. more higher. You, can, If you have an iPhone, just open it up on your podcast app. Leave us a review if you want. But hey, stars are good enough. You can visit our website, LAMeeklyPodcast.com or follow us on Instagram, LA underscore Meekly or Twitter at LA Meekly. And you can support us on Patreon for as little as $5 a month. We'll send you a handwritten postcard from around LA and we'll say your name at the top of the episode or for less, we'll just say your name and we love you. So yeah, those are a few of uh, the hidden stories, the dark, awful truth of uh, two of the biggest industries that mm-hmm. made Los Angeles. The, tr- the true Arthurs and architects yeah. of... Uh, the Arthurs and Arthurtex. Arthurtex of uh, well-loved industries. Yeah, and I can't wait till we get behind the real people, behind the oil industry and the real estate <laughs> Oh boom. no, it's Mickey Mouse. Oh, oh no. God, for both. Oh no. He, he's like lying in a pool of Goofy's blood <laughs> and a Disney animation of Eddie Maddox. Yeah, of Eddie Maddox is there. And it's I just Porky Pig. Yeah. I swear we were I just swear. playing. See, Ringo woke up for that because he, he heard uh, that Goofy was He in loves trouble. it. It is a Mickey Mouse house. So yeah, enjoy uh, this episode. We'll see you on April Fool's for our 100th episode. Oh my God, yeah. I uh, hope you enjoyed this. I hope it's a little shorter, like an hour shorter at least yeah, than uh, last month. Yeah. And uh, that's been yet another episode of LA Meekly. Ruining the things you love since 2013. I can still enjoy Clark Gable. Somehow I like him more. Joan Crawford did not have a sex problem <laughs> at all. Did she play on the Pet Sounds? <laughs> <laughs>